Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name's Ryan. My name's Brent. And on this episode, we're discussing SST 257, The Volcano Suns, Thing of Beauty, double LP. And you know, when Brent had this suggestion for this show all those decades ago, this is one of the bands that I was most excited about talking about in this format that doesn't get a lot of you know, recognition, I would say, unfortunately. And yeah. so I'm super pumped to get into this episode. Love the Volcano Suns, love all their records. This isn't actually one of my favorites, though. I have two others that I like more than this one, but it's an awesome double LP. And to help us out, Brent, we've got a special guest. You bet. We've got David Kleiler on the show. Just amazing to have David on. There's a lot of history there, which we'll go through and the interview is amazing. This is like one of the most me episodes of all time <laughs> on the show. This is, again, one of those bands that I was really, really excited about covering that just, you know, I don't think they get their due. You asked no. David the question, and I don't think they get their due. Yeah. Uh, but let's see what we can do about that. Usually if I ask a band that, it's because I don't think that they do, <laughs> that they got their due. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. You're not gonna, you're not going to ask Greg Norton that yeah. when you're interviewing him. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. Before we get into this awesome double LP, Brent, I've got a quick spiel for you. Okay. Okay, and it's an SST quiz. Oh shit. Yeah. So, I stumbled across this release this week, and I don't think we've mentioned it on the show, but I want to quiz you on it. Mm. And it's again, it's a short spiel because I want to get into this record. Do you know this record? By a band called P. No. Okay. What do you mean so, the band's called like P-E-E? -E? No, the band is called The Letter P. Do you know this record? And why is it on the SS tree? Hmm. Any guesses? Well, I can't see the hype sticker. I can't read it. Oh, I saw the word. I saw the name Flea. Okay. Well, here we go. Okay. So you failed the quiz, but let me help you out. Uh, this is from 1995 on Capitol Records. And here, I want to see how far I can get before you see the SS Tree connection on this record. Led by vocalist Gibby Haynes from the Butthole Surfers. Okay, yeah, I, I have definitely heard of this now that you say that. Yeah. Okay. okay. I don't know if I've heard it, but I, now that you say it, I, I, rem, I, I, know that it, I knew that it existed. Okay, so Gibby Haynes on vocals. You mentioned Flea on bass, some of the bass on this record. Also, a one Mr... Johnny Depp in this band from okay. uh, his other band, The Hollywood Vampires. You might have heard of Johnny Depp. He's in this band called The Hollywood Vampires. Mm -hmm. um, Johnny is also in a band with Bill Carter, who's in this band, P, who plays guitar and bass. They're in another band called Tonto's Giant Nuts. And uh, Tonto's Giant Nuts is on the Once Upon a Time in Mexico soundtrack. Mm -hmm. I, I'm sure you know that band. Mentioned Flea. Oh, and there's also a guitarist you probably know on this record called Steve Jones. Mm -hmm. He's from these bands, uh, The Professionals and The Neurotic Outsiders. Ever heard of that guy? And maybe The Sex Pistols? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you know him. Yeah. A guy named Chucky Weiss on Washboard. And here's the last tip before I tell you why this is on the SS Tree. There's another guy in this band who actually produced the record with the same last name as Chucky Weiss. Andrew? Andrew Weiss. Hmm. So he's the producer on this record. And you might remember Andrew Weiss from Jella Biafra, 
and the Guantanamo School of Medicine, Regressive Aid, Wartime, Scorn Flakes, Rollins Band, and... Ween? Gone. <laughs> I thought you said gone. <laughs> nope. Um, but Andrew plays Mellotron, bass, and he's the producer on this record by this band called P, this super group. Johnny Depp is the biggest name on the hype sticker. Oh, but, naturally. But, yeah. But Gibby uh, is the vocalist. And it's actually pretty decent. Like, it's not it's not an amazing Butthole Surfers record. But Gibby's vocals, I would say, save this record. Hmm. Um, there, is, there is a very cool cover of Dancing Queen on here, that song by ABBA. But um, worth checking out, this band P. Here's the tagline on this record. It says... P is a land, not a liquid or a fruit. Mm. Yeah. Anyways, you can find this for dirt cheap everywhere on CD in the used bins, but you should check it out. And it's on the SS tree. There you go. Yeah. That's all I got. What do you got? Okay. Uh, I have a bit of a reissue roundup for you, Ryan. Okay. Okay. Like probably a lot of our listeners, and I know you also, Ryan, I buy and rebuy so much stuff, it really is ridiculous, but <laughs> I just can't stop myself. So I've talked a lot on the show about my love for DOA. I bought my third copy of War on 45. Joe recently released a 40th anniversary edition. Obviously, the original EP rules, everybody knows that. Killer lineup of Joe, Dave Gregg, Dimwit, Wimpy. You've got some of Joe's greatest original songs like Liar for Hire, I'm Right, You're Wrong, America the Beautiful, I Hate You, some killer covers like their first reggae song, War in the East, yeah, and the Dills classic, Class War, which really is a DOA song at this point, in my opinion. Mm. It sounds amazing. So much power and ferocity in these songs. It's expanded with seven demos from 1982 with Biscuits on Drums, including Rent-A-Riot, which Chuck Biscuits wrote. Uh, an early version of Race Riot, Liar for Hire, No Way Out, America the Beautiful. All of these tracks have come out multiple times on comps like The Lost Tapes and the Double LP 1978 from a few years back. But fuck it, it's still awesome. Comes with two covers, the LP, the original uh, Alternative Tentacles US cover, and then the uh, AT UK cover. So that's cool. Yeah. Comes with this booklet like a lot of these, his reissues do, Songs of Power and Struggle, with liner notes by Joe and put together by current DOA drummer Patty. Looks great. Iconic Ed Culver shot of the of the lineup from this era. Oh, right on. Yeah, right on. Wow, that's yeah. a great shot. So that's, that they, There's a t-shirt like that, isn't there? Oh yeah, for sure. Pretty, pretty sure there is, yeah. I want to show you this picture, though. So, um... There's a picture in here of Joe playing like a, a double cutaway um, Les Paul. Oh, like, with, a, like a special? Yeah, with P90s in it. Like you don't usually don't see Joe play anything other than a SG. Than an SG, but I'm not sure if you can see this. Can you see the stickers that are on that, Ryan? Oh, it looks like a Long and McQuaid sticker on there. <laughs> you bet it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Isn't right that on. cool? Totally repping Canada's music store. Yeah. Uh, I mentioned, okay, so that's that one. Pick it up. It's great. I mentioned this in passing a few weeks back, but I bought this Black Sabbath Live Evil 40th Anniversary Super Deluxe. I've bought all of the Black Sabbath Super Deluxe box sets. Some are better than others. 
I love the Ronnie James Dio era. Never been a huge fan of this live album, although I, I have the original on LP. And I was a little skeptical, no extra tracks on this, even though they apparently recorded more dates. It's the original double album, remastered, of course, and then a new mix of the entire album from the original analog tapes by Wynn mm. Davis, founder of Total Access Recordings. Oh, no way. So this is on the SS tree, too. I guess it kind of is, yeah. All, th- all three recordings, P, <laughs> <laughs> War on 45, and this. Wow. Yep. Honestly, the new mix is killer and a significant improvement, in my opinion. Definitely worth hearing. The original mix is not great. That's definitely been fixed now. It's an important reminder of how important Ronnie was in rebooting Sabbath's career into the 1980s and what a phenomenal talent he was. Also, I'm not one for all the ephemera that usually comes with these packages, but the books that come with all of these uh, Sabbath Super Deluxe editions are all really great. Hmm. Finally, I want to talk about Two of the greatest albums in the history of rock that have recently been reissued in deluxe editions, and that's Alice Cooper's 1971 classic Killer and 1972's follow-up Schools Out. If you're like me and you've heard both of these albums thousands of times, they're both definitely worth picking up again. Both come with a live live album. The 1972 concert that comes with Killer has been released before on the Easy Action label as Marai Soul. But if you don't have that already, it's killer, pun intended. The live album itself sounds amazing, and there's not a bad song on on the studio album. Great liner notes, too. Quotes from all of the surviving members talking about the recording, touring, and breaking down the songs, how they were written, dissecting the lyrics. If you're a fan of the original Alice Cooper group, you just can't sleep on these reissues. The School's Out one also has great liners and a live album from Miami in 1972. Um, Some single versions and studio outtakes. I guess, I don't know, maybe I'm not supposed to be talking about Alice Cooper. There's a bit of a backlash against him for some anti-trans crap he was spouting off about recently, which is unfortunate. You'd think... so so bizarre coming from a guy who was like one of the first cross-dressing shock rockers. Hey, bizarre. Uh, You'd think someone who's been in the business as long as him would know better. And, and it's not an excuse, but he's 75 year, years old. I'm, you know, like I am not excusing it, but when you, when you look at what he said, he clearly doesn't have a clue what he's talking about. So just shut up. Yeah. He's just maybe, you know, not with the times Yeah, perhaps. Right. Okay. Uh, real quick, Ryan, I wanted to mention a few blog pieces on the tree. Okay. Okay. Josh Hayden has been posting pieces of his memoir that he's writing to his Substack uh, for about a year now, and it's going to be awesome. One of his latest is titled Charlie Hayden Meets the Minutemen. So he's talking about getting into the Minutemen and um, seeing them for the first time at the Whiskey in 1982 with fear. I won't spoil it because everyone should just go read it for themselves. But he goes into detail about the night 39 years ago that Charlie Hayden played on stage with the Minutemen. So definitely check that out. Uh, Jim Rulin's awesome message from the Underworld substack. What is substack? What's that? It's, pardon me Pardon me on that. What is that? It's like a platform where writers can can post their material and you can oh, okay. pay t- some have paid subscriptions. 
it's where you put blogs other than just the normal internet. It's kind of the number one place for, for blogging. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Okay. I should have asked. Funny? Why is that funny? Uh, because, I don't know, I was just like, what is that? I should probably know about it. And then it's, you know, the number one on the planet. It just reveals how <laughs> out of the loop I am. At least I'm not, like, out of the loop like Alice Cooper. Yeah, keep, yeah. Keep going. Okay, so Jim has a great piece up about Robert Bracera of the Stains, uh, rest in peace. Oh, oh yeah, right. Uh, it's more of a primer for his larger piece on Robert that was recently published in the LA Times. Uh, if you're not a subscriber to the Times, you can usually get an article a day before you hit their paywall. And I would encourage everyone to read Jim's excellent piece on Robert. Uh, it talks about Dezo almost joining the Stains as a mm. vocalist while he was in Black Flag, but someone, I won't say who, uh, just go read it. Talked him out of joining the stains. <laughs> no way. Yeah, you'll have to read it to find out who talked Dezo out of joining the stains, okay? Yeah. Well, it sounds like I'm going to Substack. Yeah. I'll give a quick mention of of Joe Carducci's blog, The New Vulgate. The next issue will feature Joe's biographical essay about the life of the Spotinator. So watch for that. Mm, that'll be good. Yeah, he hasn't published anything for a while. But he's excused. He's been busy. He just published his seventh book, Chicago Stories, his third collection of screenplays. Also, one of his scripts is being adapted into a film. Have you seen this, Ryan? No. Okay, so it's being directed by James Fotopoulos. Sorry if I'm butchering that name. Uh, it's called The Golden Sarcophaga. Mm. Uh, I believe it's in post-production now. It's... It stars Jim Fletcher of experimental theater group The Worcester Group. It also stars William Duvall of Neon Christ, Alice in Chains, and Blast. And Cool Keith, the rapper. Here, I'll just read you a quote about the movie, okay? Check this out. The film follows a homeless member of a storefront congregation, that's Cool Keith, as he stumbles across the ultimate invasive species nesting in abandoned rooftop water towers, a large insect last seen before Christ and emerging en masse to render a new plague upon a fallen world. The congregation grows when he discovers the psychedelic properties of the insect's egg sac and supplants the, the pastor by means of his role as intercessor <laughs> with the insect after consulting his younger brother, that's William Duvall, a professor of etymology whose scheme to profit from the discovery backfires horrifically in his lab. Jeez. Yeah. Okay, Ryan. So that's, that's, uh, that's what Joe's been working on real quick, Ryan. And this will be quick. I, so this uh, new issue of classic rock magazine, it's yes. all about the eighties, right? Yeah, boy, there's a lot of hair on that front cover. Yeah, but there's also a piece on Dinosaur Jr. and their impact on um, music of the 90s. Yeah, speaking of Boston. Yep. Fresh interview with Jay, and I want to read you a quote from here that just, I just love it. Let me see here. Dinosaur Jr.'s sound and this record, they're talking about you're living all over me, mm. overdriven, melodic, with feral soloing from Mascus, would become massively influential with developing indie acts such as My Bloody Valentine quoting its Sonic Chaos. Sonic Chaos was reigning in LA too, amid the hairspray and makeup of the glam metal scene. 
Was this something that Mascus could relate to? Here's Jay. It depended on the band and the song, he says. Cinderella I liked because they sounded kind of stonesy and had cool gear, nodding to the past. A turnoff would be if they had weird pink guitars. When scruffy tearaways Guns and Guns and Roses with their Fenders and Les Pauls roared out of the strip, Mascus was impressed. I think everybody liked them, he says, and they tapped into punk rock. Some of their early recorded live stuff was at the Ritz, a New York club that we played, and they showed that on MTV, which was pretty cool. Cinderella, Ryan. I feel vindicated. Because <laughs> Jay Mascus likes Cinderella? Yeah. Ah, oh, that's okay, man. I still, I still like you because you like Cinderella. Are you gonna like try and get into Cinderella though? Likely not. Hmm. Nope. No, I've got so many other cool bands to mention in uh, the upcoming segments of the show. Hmm. So, not enough time for Cinderella. Well, you're lost. Yep. Okay, uh, that's all I have, Ryan. Let's get into this Volcano Suns record. Yeah. History lesson part one. All right, so. Unfortunately, we only get to do two Volcano Suns records on the show, but thank goodness we get to do them at all. It's such a great band, and as we mentioned at the outset of the show, I don't think they get their due, and I definitely hope that more people discover them through this show and the amazing, amazing interview with uh, with David. I mean... The amount of uh, names that he drops mm-hmm. in that interview are just insane. And and I've got some spiels and some nugs, um, but let's start from the start a bit. And we already had Volcano Suns Farst LP on the show at episode SST 210, where we were lucky enough to have Peter Prescott on as a guest. On that episode, we do a deep dive on Volcano Suns, where we go through the band history all the releases by the band. As some of our listeners are likely already aware, Volcano Sons are from Boston. They were formed by Peter after Mission of Burma dissolved. This record, Thing of Beauty, is their fifth album. Their first four, and these come up multiple times during the interview, their first four are The Bright Orange Ears from 1985, All Night Lotus Party from 1986, and Bumper Crop from 1987. All three of those are on the excellent Homestead Records. Bumper Crop is one of my two favorite Volcano Suns records, but all three of those are amazing. Um, 1988's Farst, I mentioned, we did that on episode SST 210. And that's the recording, Farst, where our guest David, he also started to be part of the Volcano Suns. He was kind of taking, starting to take over maybe from uh, Chuck Hahn on guitar in the band. Um, and David and Chuck were both bandmates in this band called Sorry, an early punk, post-punk band from Boston, which I'll talk more about in a minute here. And then there's this album, Thing of Beauty, the last one that the Volcano Suns did for SST. And it's really interesting to hear David talk about the recording sessions and Peter's vision in particular, because, you know, other than comps, I didn't check, but this might be, you know, except for maybe a good for you record, this might be the last, you know, double LP on the label for like a hundred catalog numbers. Do you know that for a fact that there's a double good for you record? Yeah, man. Oh God, help us. (laughs) Except for comps. There are are definitely... Two LP comps, but this might be the last 
double LP of like, you know, original mm-hmm. music put out by a band. I, I didn't check Ryan and people will, will probably correct us on this, but, um, other than no age one Oh two, I don't think we've seen a double studio album since the one, two punch of nickel, double nickels and Zen arcade. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a while. I mean, and there are a number coming up of comps, you know, like Meat Puppets, Screaming Trees, Sommery, right? Did we do yeah. Sommery? No. No, yeah. So that, I mean, like that's all coming, right? So kind of an end of an era for SST as well. And it was their last record for the label. Um, their next record is one of my two favorites by Volcano Sons. I mentioned Bumper Crop is one of my favorites. And then the next is the album Career in Rock on quarter stick from 1991, which Steve Albini produced and uh, very cool to hear David talk about those sessions as well. Now, not much is really out there, unfortunately about volcano suns, but since the last episode, we've got this book. We can be the new wind, which gives a great rundown in it. This is that book on earth Island books written by Alexandros Anisiadis and let me read you the spiel on Volcano Suns in here. It kind of gives a really good history lesson and an album-by-album album rundown. This is a good rundown for folks who haven't listened to the Farst episode yet, and they want to know, like, how did we get to Thing of Beauty, this record that we're covering on this show. So here we go. Here's Alexandros. It's funny, too. This first liner is, is just killing me. Quote, Never getting the recognition they deserved. Volcano Sons from Boston, Massachusetts, formed by the former Mission of Burma drummer Peter Prescott in 1984. The initial lineup included Gary Wylick and Steve Meichner, who would leave after a few months before the release of the first Sons album and went on to form another great band that is included in this book, Big Dipper. Prescott then added Jeff Wygand on bass guitar and John Williams on guitar. This lineup released the first Volcano Suns LP, the 1985 The Bright Orange Years. And uh, for his book, Alexandros interviews Jeff. So there's a bunch of quotes from Jeff here. Here's Jeff. There was no motivation other than being original. It's a balance, of course. You love your influences, but don't want repetition. Repetition is for losers. However, we loved Wire. Wire was a key band for all of us, certainly. Then some Cheap Trick and New Order and certainly The Fall. Actually, we wanted it to be a rock band, nothing too deep, but good riffs. The Bright Orange Years on Homestead Records has everything a great indie punk record needs. Pop sensibilities, hardcore riffing, great and catchy anthems. It certainly has a specific pink flag wire vibe. The guitar sounds so much alike. But in terms of originality, Volcano Suns win. Just imagine the most anthemic Husker Du moments alongside the melancholy of Mission of Burma with Wire's guitar sound, and all of it very straightforward and catchy. I really can't choose any of the great 13 songs, but yes, the beautiful instrumental Truth is Stranger Than Fishing, the punk dynamic of Cover, and the epic Silvertone are just examples of their genius. And actually, there's a strange feeling of epicness all over the bright orange years, an element that Volcano Suns kept for their subsequent releases too. And I would agree, all the Volcano Suns records feel epic definitely homestead released right afterwards in 1986 the sea cruise seven inch but volcano suns didn't seem to enjoy acceptance from the boston scene jeff states early on the scene where we lived in sucked everyone was into shitty root bands like del fuegos 
we would pull like 40 folks in Boston at the time, then go out of town and pull like 700. They got it. The crowd is always wrong in your hometown until it gets big. And the same was true for every good band we knew. Homestead Records, on the other hand, believed in Volcano Sons and supported them both in terms of touring nationwide as well as releasing new music. All Night Lotus Party, 1986 LP, presented a different point of view with the band, with Prescott having a much limited role on the songwriting and Williams taking over. Less melodic and tuneful than before, it still contains some great songs, like the early Gun Club meets Deja Voodoo of Canada, the excellent indie punk of Sounds Like Bucks, and the weirdness of Village Idiot. Still, it doesn't hold a candle next to Bright Orange Years, even though it is decent. All Night Lotus Party was to become the album that provoked changes in Volcano Suns. In 1987, Bob Weston and Chuck Hahn of New Parts from Old and The Great Sorry replaced Weigand and Williams, respectively. Here's Jeff. I love Bright Orange Years, and yes, All Night Lotus Party was more complicated, but still very good. Then uh, Alex Andrews starts to talk about the, the next lineup and subsequent releases. Starting in 1987, Bumper Crop, the band sounded like it was on fire. Absolutely crazy, anthemic, and menacing indie punk, Bum- Bumper Crop not only has a huge and crunchy guitar sound, but also some of the best songs the band ever wrote. Bumper Crop also caught the attention of SST Records, who offered them a contract for two LPs. Volcano Suns toured throughout their career with bands as diverse as Husker Du, Nirvana, Firehose, and Verbal Assault. But Jeff admits that his favorite shows were touring with The Fall, a band that he adored, and he actually struck up a friendship with Mark Smith. I didn't know that was possible. (laughs) I know, right? Uh, Here we go. Farst. The 1988 Farst LP drastically departed from the Bumper Crops approach and with a sound more akin to the jangle rock scene, less meaty with janglier guitars. Volcano Suns almost went for a Paisley approach with Brother Superior. This one reminds me so much of early Dream Syndicate, adding a weirder, more angular and experimental edge, such as the instrumental Shriney, but still writing some bloody good tunes like Commune. Farst, though, isn't the best record to start with Volcano's Sons on, since it sounds pretty confused and not as inspired as before. I I disagree, but, you know, it is what it is. Um, However, the double LP thing of beauty was a much better effort, and it's like their own Zen Arcade or Double Nickels on the Dime. There is hardcore, melodic indie punk, anthemic and experimental on an extremely consistent record. It has to be noted that Volcano Sons went to release music via three of the most important labels of the whole indie punk sound. Homestead, SST, and Touch and Go's sub-label, Quarterstick Records. After a two-year recording hiatus, Quarterstick released their final LP, Career in Rock, which was also followed by a 7-inch called Blue Rib. And this was released in 1991, falling exactly in between the explosion of Seattle grunge. Things could have been much better for Volcano Suns. After all, they were major inspirations to bands like Mudhoney, but this didn't happen. However, this doesn't mean that Career and Rock was a bad record. Yes, the element of surprise and experimentation was lost, but the tunes are there. And I totally agree. Like, mm-hmm. you know, Career and Rock is awesome. Uh, here's Alexandros again. Failing miserably, though, to achieve commercial success, 
Volcano Suns split up later in 1991, and that's too bad. Uh, Post-Volcano Suns, Prescott went on to form Customized and Mini Beast. Gary played in Mars Classroom and the Japanese Beatles. Bob Weston played with Indie Garage Crush and joined Shellac in 1994. And here's, here's the... The quote at the end that I like to kind of wraps it up. At a glance, I can understand that Volcano Sons are not the easiest band to get into. Sometimes they go beyond any normality and they derail from the ordinary. But this is their magic. If I were to choose two records for starters, these would be Bright Orange Years and Bumper Crop. If you like those two, proceed to their other stuff. There are certain moments in the discography of Volcano Sons that the band sounds as glorious as any of the most famous bands of this era and style. Plus, you can get all their records at ridiculously cheap prices. Very true. So that's a bit of a long spiel, but again, there's not much out there written about the band's history. Now, in, as I mentioned, in our episode on Farst, SST210, I mentioned a ton of other bands related to Volcano Suns, and their various members and related offshoots like The Malls, Big Dipper, Dump Truck, Embarrassment, Dreadful in the Din, Shellac, Crush, Customized, Human Sexual Response, Mini Beast. Many of these come up in the interview with David, but David's band, Sorry, deserves a bit of a special mention here, I would say, because it comes up often in the interview and we didn't do like a deep dive on it mm -hmm. in, uh, in episode 210. And again, Sorry is this uh, early Boston hardcore post-punk band that both Chuck Hahn and David were in. Chuck moved over to Volcano Suns before David, and then David replaced Chuck in Volcano Suns. So, Sorry was active in Boston from about 1982 to 1986. John Easley was on vocals, who went on to the great band Crown Heights. If you don't know Crown Heights, check them out. Andrew Burstein on drums went on to the great band Slughog. If you don't know the band Slughog, check them out. Then Chuck, who was on bass at the time, and then David. They released two records, Imaginary Friend on Radio Beat Records from 1984 and The Way It Is on Homestead in 1986. So check out this entry on Sorry from Andrew Earle's excellent book, Give Me Indie Rock. Uh, he only has the Imaginary Friend record here. Check it out. Painfully Overlooked, Imaginary Friend is the first and best of two releases by Boston's Sorry between 1984 and 86. After debuting on the Gerard Cosloy curated Bands That Could Be God compilation, Sorry released this fantastic album of hardcore tempos infused with Mission of Burma, Minutemen, and UK post-punk influences. It opens with the electrifying minute-and-a-half blur of My Word, a ping-ponging, melodic, avant-hardcore anthem of anthems. Mission of Burma's Roger Miller played keyboards on four of the 18 tracks, including a cover of the Mekons' Where Were You? Guitarist and vocalist David Kleiler went on to play in Volcano Suns. Now, I'll take issue with Andrew's comment that Imaginary Friend is the best one. I actually prefer The Way It Is better. Same. Same. On, yeah, 1986 on Homestead. Uh, just check out that song, That's Fine With Me, and tell me that's not one of the best, mm -hmm. un, you know, unrecognized post-punk indie rock songs of all time. It's just killer. And not to mention, there are sweet covers of Wire's Ex-Lion Tamer and Link Ray's song Rumble. Yep. Just amazing. So very cool to have David on the show. I mean, you hear Mission of Burma 
come up a ton in the interview. And then all of these comparisons and relationships with Volcano Sons and even the band Sorry. And obviously, Mission of Burma loomed large in Boston. No doubt about it. But I have to say, I mean, and I love Burma. I would say Volcano Sons, very unique. Love all their records on their own. Same with Sorry. I mean, those two records are killer. I've had them for a long time. It, this was a great excuse to re-listen to them and remind myself of them. Yep. Just wait until you listen to this interview, though, with David and see all the other bands he mentions. Well, let's get to it, man. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by David Kleiler. David, thanks for being on the show. Great to be here. Okay, let's go all the way back. Did you grow up in Boston? Yes, I did. I grew up in Boston. Um, my dad was a college professor, and he taught film and film theory, right? So we lived in suburban Boston when I was a kid, and then we lived in New York for a while while he studied film, and then we came back to Boston. And when we came back to Boston, I lived in Brookline. And my father... Why I mentioned him so much is that one of his college students, um, one of his sort of pet students was a roadie for the band Mission of Burma. And so when I I met those guys when I was about 13 and it was this huge, you know, kind of Alice in Wonderland through the looking glass thing because it opened me up to the Boston rock scene, what was happening. And it was very vibrant. Mm-hmm. Um and incredible and like i like i think about it now a friend of mine just did a uh a, a compilation of the band the neats mm-hmm. you know and yep. like that not that this has anything to do with that just there were there were just dozens and dozens of bands from boston in the late 70s early 80s that could have been significant bands nationally and they just stayed in Boston at that time. There was not yet um, a sort of international or national even really, you know, indie rock scene. It was totally regional in Boston. As many people will tell you, Boston had its own distinctive features. Like there was this real college radio culture because, you know, this guy who's now a guru in uh, radio, he owns Clear Channel, basically. He was a... Back then, he was the first person to play punk rock on the radio on WMBR um, at a show called The Demi Mon. So I was like listening to radio and being jealous. There was a band that Mission of Burma loved called Vitamin. Yep. <laughs> and they were kind of, they were a little older than I was. They're just a couple years older, but they were like teenagers in the rock scene. And me and some of my friends were just like, envious and wanting to get in there and you know i did happen to see mission of burma like in my right in when i was in eighth grade and look i've you know i'm a we all have that band right like we all have a band that we kind of maybe almost irrationally love but I am here to say I, I, I've seen some legitimate rock shows in my life. I think I can say that objectively. Like, saw The Clash, Kill It, saw Minor Threat, saw Fugazi, saw Sonic Youth in their heyday. I mean, I've seen some shit. You know, I've seen early Nirvana. I've seen My Bloody Valentine. I've seen bands be incredible. You know, you know, it's like when I talk to older dudes, I'm like, did you see Hendrix? You know, I just right. want to know. <laughs> did you touch the grail kind of thing? 
for me, I would say that at their peak, which was right before they broke up in 1983, the best band on planet Earth was Mission of Burma. Mm -hmm. um, they combined a sense of uh, kind of groovy experimentalism that felt like they were improvising their songs with like a genuine kind of Midwestern drive of, uh, you know, punk rock and Stooges. And they, I don't think people, you know, cause they did this reunion and they were very uh, sort of people got to know them more, but like when they were still in their twenties and early thirties, like they were just, they just ripped. They just actually ripped. They were the artiest band that ripped. Um, that's, that was my take on it. And, whatever i was also 14 like i didn't right. even understand what was happening and i was so blown away by them so yes that is my incredibly long-winded answer to <laughs> did i grow up in boston yes and i had an unusual childhood that involved rock and roll my dad also did this weird thing as a college professor where he uh, was uh ran a, a underground film society that would show sort of classic art films at you know bars and art galleries. And so by the time I was 15, 16, I was sort of enjoying the counterculture art scene of Boston in the early 80s. And it was super formative. And one night I came home from high school um, and all the members of Mission of Burma were sitting in my living room <laughs> because my father was showing uh, the Dadaist uh, film Hans Richter's Dreams That Money Can Buy. Wow. And I was, I mean, I was starstruck and I got to know those guys and they were the fucking coolest on top of it all. And um, that's, yeah, that's how sort of all of it my relationship with the volcano sun started you know from mm -hmm. that point on. right what about the band the outlets um in, again like again when i say there are dozens of bands that could have been national stars the outlets like when you i saw them many times and they're straight up rock and roll i mean look I, there's a whole they're Someone should do an insane podcast about the history of Boston rock and roll from 1978 to 1986, maybe. Um, and the outlets were firmly in a camp. There was sort of like a rock with like a W-R-A-C-K kind of vibe. Like they were kind of raw. They were kind of straight up rock and roll, you know. And Boston, you know, had a – there were two veins. There was like this super arty vein that was happening. And they were kind of in the shadow of Mission of Burma. And there was always like a hard rock, rock vein. And the outlets were very much a part of that. And they were incredible. Like all these bands, Neighborhoods, La Pest, The Bags, really, and earlier, The Real Kids, DMZ, all these bands were just like classic rock bands. You'd be like, Jesus Christ. What did your generation... Like, down Again by the outlets is like, that's a, I mean, that's like, that's a great song, yeah, you know? yeah. Classic Ruins were another one. Jesus, like, one, I don't know if you know that jam, but like one and one is less than two by the Classic Ruins. You're like, I think Ace of Hearts put that on a single. Like, again, like like high level, serious rock, you know, 
Leather Jacket Rock. What about Boy's Life? Loved Boy's Life, envious of Boy's Life, um, because they were also with Vitamin. Vitamin and Boy's Life were kind of a team because um, they were younger. They were like in high school, but they were sort of playing with the arty bands that were in their 20s. Mm-hmm. And then I tr- we tried to get in there. When I was a junior in high school, I started a band called Sorry. And Sorry was like very much picking up from where Boy's Life, Vitamin took. We were borrowing from it. We, we were sort of in trying to build on that legacy, but then we also included hardcore big time. Were like the Boston hardcore bands completely separate from, or were those A like did those bands bit. play together? It was weird cross pollination. Like, oh god, we're just going so deep here. There was cross pollination. Yeah. Um, and a friend of mine who's the president of Matador Records now, like who at the time managed Sorry, he he just wrote this sort of very eloquent piece that he was sending up for. He did a, a, a compilation mixtape of like great underground rock from the late 70s, early 80s in Boston. And he put it really well. It's like Boston, there was such a like monolithic sports culture. And there was such a like kind of like working whack, white, you know, sort of working class white racism going on. And there was certain kind of like so much of that was happening that like there was this intramural rock scene. So even if you were like this arty person who was in one of the arty into the arty rock bands that were like, you know, on propeller records. But then you saw a skinhead who was into SSD control or DYS or negative approach or, uh, you know, negative effects or any of those bands. There there was a meeting of those minds. Mm-hmm. It's hard to there was a real sweet spot. And sorry, I have to say fit. We came up right at that moment where. All these different rock scenes kind of converged. Um, but, yeah, it was, you know, it was an intramural rock scene, as I like to call it, but like just like a high school, you know, there were different cliques for sure. And Burma, one of the reasons they were so great was that they embraced hardcore punk. Like I found, I learned about Black Flag from Mission to Burma. Right. Like I got the Jealous Again EP, you know, arguably the greatest SST release, you know, (laughs) Um, uh, from like because of the guys in Mission of Burma and like that was what was so incredible about that band and it's hard to put in perspective is that you know they were this already super arty like you know really into advanced musicianship on some level but they were really into hardcore punk so there was a cross-pollination however the hardcore punk scene did kind of like as SSD control became more popular like they did kind of it did kind of coalesce Mm-hmm. in this one way what was your connection to busted statues so that guy his name is bob moses he passed away last year who was my father's student mm. um who was a roadie for mission of burma okay yeah busted statues were kind of all the they're kind of the roadies of mission of burma huh. um the lead singer bob larue was the roadies for Mission of Burma was such a scene. It was so silly, but it was so great. 
they called all their roadies deacons, you know, like you would have in the church because yeah. they were always like kneeling very earnestly on the side, just waiting for Roger Miller to break a guitar string. <laughs> Bob Moses, Bob LaRue, and this guy, Michael Mooney, were all the deacons of Mission of Burma. And they had to start their own band. And they joined forces with Peter Prescott's ex-girlfriend, Diane Bergamasco. Mm -hmm. And that was the band and originally. And then when I came... I basically dropped out of NYU to join the Volcano Sons in 88. Um, I had, sorry had run its course. I went to film school and, you know, whatever weird for life decisions and craziness. But I was like, I miss playing music so much that I just did a radical thing. And um, when uh, I mean, it's the other story that I should set up more clearly, but I had been in Sorry, Volcano Sons played uh, with Sorry, Busted Statues played with Sorry, all these bands, Salem 66, I mean, Dinosaur played with Sorry. Mm -hmm. Sorry was like, you know, we only put out two records. The second record we put out was on that original run of, was, let me put it this way, the catalog for Homestead Records, when the Sorry record came out, was pretty fucking insane yeah. yeah uh sonic youth evil um green river squirrel bait big black dinosaur gerard cosley who is my age yeah. got the job he went to college for like two months and then he was pulled in to do be the president of homestead and he just signed all those bands and sorry was among those bands and i we were like jesus christ was, is like, was he the friend that was managing you that you mentioned? No, oh, okay. he, they're all okay. It's so complicated to break this down. <laughs> he wasn't, he was friends with the friend who managed and basically Patrick Gerard and this friend of mine who I met in New York when I went to college was uh, Chris Lombardi. Chris Lombardi founded Matador, mm -hmm. got Gerard. We, I sort of introduced them all to be honest. Yeah. Um, but Gerard was like, I mean, I'm going to say we're older guys, right? Yeah. Gerard was 14 years old and he was doing phone interviews with Ian Curtis <laughs> at 14. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was like he was very next level. Yeah. And he wrote fanzine that like bef decades before the Internet, would you would shit your pants laughing. It was so good. It was so he was just trashing so many people in the Boston rock scene. And he was so funny and he had such good taste in music. So anyway, like. Yeah, it's 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 hard. It's hard for me to untangle. And I know I'm not doing it well. And I know you're going to go insane because I produce <laughs> video and I know how it's hard to untangle stories and stuff. But again, the Venn diagram of all these people and all these scenes, it was just it, the Boston scene was just insanely rich. As I get older, I just can't even believe I was remotely a part of it. Like and the bands we saw every day were just it was just insane. And these people, these big personalities and these people who are so passionate about music, you know, kind of made a big difference in, you know, when you look at what Gerard's roster was for when he joined Homestead, you're like, well, that kind of defined fucking indie rock forever. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, you've got you've got Frodo Grunge with Green River. You've got so much in the big early big black records i mean you got dinosaur it's like he kind of covered it he kind of set the and you had sonic youth you had like he was really setting the stage for what would we would you know the next 30 years of rock music in a way absolutely um so if we're going to talk about thing of beauty which <laughs> we're jumping ahead 
like I was kind of a crazy person who had missed playing music so much and, you know, being annoyed, being with college people who were like, well, you might have heard of this band called Who's Screw Do. You probably haven't heard of them. And I was like, fuck, I played there. I op- my band opened their first show in Boston. Like, shut up, you know, and <laughs> wanting to have that connection to the music community that I had in high school. And so when I came back to Boston, not only did I join the Volcano Sons who were gearing up to, you know, Peter was like, he was not going to stop. He wanted to keep that going. There was really the hope that, you know, this was going to become, you know, the Volcano Sons were going to really keep going and and do what Husker Du did, you know. Uh, But at the same time, I I way overextended and joined the Busted Statues, too. And that was it was probably one of the most fun times of my life, like being in both those bands. The Busted Statues just like hilarious, great people, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, You, Andrew, Chuck and Jonathan, you were all in high school together when you formed Sorry? Yeah. Yeah. I was, a, yeah. Oh, uh, I had been playing in bands in freshman and sophomore year. I was a goofy band called Origin of Species. And then I was like, oh, I'm done with rock. You know, I'm going to be a serious person. It's a thing. It's an ongoing theme in my life. Like, oh, no, it's over. <laughs> That's not what I'm going to do. And then junior year happened. I would say that sorry, there were a couple formative things that happened, the why we played in sorry. And there was this, gig that flipper did in boston it was an all-ages gig and i don't know again you know you see gigs in your life and they're kind of life-changing and flipper was so amazing like i can't tell you how good this they were just so it was such an insane show like they played at this art gallery that was in a part of boston that's very tony now and was tony then it got shut down by the police ultimately but that just sort of wall of noise and that attitude and, you know, just that full on, it was, it made such an impression. I felt like I was seeing public image, but like more insane and in a small room and in, at the moment, you know? And mm-hmm. so when I was a junior in high school, I was like, you know, I had just gone to Ireland for a glorified high school field trip and everybody, you know, in the UK, people say sorry when they bump into one another. They sort of over and I'm so calling. Like, I'm calling you from Canada, so I know all about that. Yeah, you know, you know. Um, so yeah, they say sorry, sorry. Oh, sorry. Um, and I was like, what if we had a band called Sorry, and we're kind of going towards something that Flipper would do, just like super fucking noisy and insane. And John, um, who was an in, just an enormous personality, just like enormous personality um i'd be like it'd be so amazing if he fronted it and it was we thought it was a joke but of course it became something we got really serious about fast and Mm -hmm. we started playing shows and honestly i think it's because of the john's presence honestly and our like kind of nerdy but like you know still trying to be a hardcore band but kind of be an art band thing it just it, it it just worked and people people would come to see John for sure. Absolutely. Because he would like it's not like he was Gigi Allen, but like he would like go again, we were sixteen and he would like pour beers on people's heads and stuff. <laughs> we didn't play all ages shows. We would also play the art rock shows. 
and we were like the kids at the art rock shows which is exactly what we wanted to do we wanted to be vitamin and boys life and we did that we did it so okay so how did you end up replacing chuck in volcano sons was did chuck recommend you or did peter ask you how did how did that happen it, it was a logical choice in a way um peter asked me i was probably having a bit of a mental breakdown at college like it was not working for me and it just made sense like it just made sense i mean i'd known peter like he again this the early iterations of the sons the pre-recording iterations of the sons had played with sorry we were just all part of this communal group of musicians so and there was i think a moment where chuck was like well i'm still gonna do it and we can be a two guitar band but it was clearly not gonna happen like that wasn't gonna really happen mm -hmm. um and I mean, I think Chuck's playing like Blumbercraft's amazing. And I feel like Chuck's like he was per that was a great iteration of the band. But I was psyched to do the Volcano Sense. I was very psyched. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was still, even though I was a little older, I was still like, holy shit, I'm playing with the guy that like when I was 14 and 15 years old, thought was the best drummer in the world. And, you know solid argument that he is one i mean yeah, he's incredible to play with like so yeah that's how that happened okay. and then i knew i hadn't seen i'd seen the bob iteration of the band yeah i'd seen chuck and bob play with peter at cbgb's for bumper crop mm -hmm. i still live there okay and it was not long after that i joined so when you were writing songs for thing of beauty was do you think the plan was to write enough for a double album was like that's something you talked about it <laughs> or did it just kind of happen that way? I there's the rub. Okay, here'll be my spiel about this. And I know I'm just like going off. It's just so bad. <laughs> You're gonna have so much painful editing to do. The logaria is so real. Peter Prescott is an artist. Like, and I don't say that lightly because I actually know a lot of musicians who aren't necessarily artists. But like in terms of like he wakes up and thinking about what his purpose and mission is and what he wants to say and what he wants to do. He is really that guy. Mm -hmm. um, he got it. From. Clint and Roger when he was in Burma, he understood what it was to be an artist. He probably got it in a way from Roger is literally like absolutely like just an artist you spend time with him and you're like you know he's thinking about his work you know it's just like he's he he sees he sees the world through the lens of how he's going to express in music and peter so on the one hand i think peter did want to enjoy yieldy indie rock success but because you, you know the breakup of Mission of Burma for Peter had been traumatic. I mean, that'd be my take on it. Like, and I would, that would make sense to me. I mean, the, here are these two sort of erudite, musical, very awesome guys who put, you know, Peter is from different, a different background than them. You know, he's from a totally different background. He came from, he will say it. I mean, he came from like sort of more working class roots in a town near the Cape in Boston. And like he played in Burma and they were kind of at their peak and he was probably only 24 years old or something. And then these guys are like, no, we're not doing this anymore. Mm -hmm. And yep. I, I think that what he saw is that he was going to continue no matter what his musical project. And he did not 
I love, I mean, those first two Sons records, it's like annoying because I was in the band. I sort of, we sort of did the Vegas road, my version of the Sons, like we did the sort of Vegas road show of Volcano Sons, you know, because those songs are so song based. But what I'm trying to get to here is that Peter was already very seriously flirting with the idea of breaking out of song based stuff and doing more groove based, almost experimental instrumental stuff. Mm. And the problem was he had two younger guys who adored his earlier work and wanted to write songs. And Peter just, I think really wanted to do something different. And we did not initially go into it. I mean, this is the the story. This will be my take on it. I think it's correct. I mean, I think it's based in reality, at least, is that we did not go into it thinking we were going to do a double album. Certainly, Bob and I didn't think we were going to go do doing a double album. I think that Bob really enjoyed playing with me. And we are really close. We're close to this day. Like, I talk to him often. And, you know, we really get along, which is a little bit funny because, like, the earlier iterations of The Suns, I mean... Pete adored Chuck with it. I don't think they talk at all, but like, you know, they were sort of notoriously difficult situations. Like, you know, Peter calls his publishing company blown stack music for a reason. He's, <laughs> he has a, you know, he will admit he has, he's temperamental, kind of difficult to work with. You know, Bob and I were just so like, we're going to make, we're going to have fun. Like we're still in our early twenties. Like we're going to just like, this is going to be fun. Like we wanted. And the thing is, we were probably a little bit in our own ways, too much fanboys of the earlier Peter Prescott stuff. And he was like, he wanted to do something different. And so there was a tension going into it kind of a little bit. Because like already Farst was leaving the reservation a little bit. Like it was not as song based. Like to me, the best Volcano Song songs are songs like Four Letters, White Elephant. I don't know if you know these records, Mm -hmm. but the first two records, they're very like, that's the thing that's so confounding and wild about Peter. He's doing music now that's not song-based at all, but I would absolutely, like, I know this is crazy, but, like, I'm socially a little bit, I've become acquainted since I've lived in Los Angeles with Amy Mann, who I think is, like, you can't, whatever you think of her work, like, she's a songwriter. Like, she knows how to turn a phrase. She's a songwriter. And I think the thing that's, like, bananas about Peter's early, like, those songs are great songs. Like, he knew how to, he his wordplay and painting a picture with words. He was like really good at that stuff. And um, it's just funny. He wanted to go in more of a direction where, which I appreciate too, because we listened to can we listened to like, we were, you know, we've listened to stuff, but he, he, I think was ready now that the band was still going on and was yet another lineup. And also, I'll say this, like, my playing is a little different than the previous guitar players. Like, I'm a little more noodly and, like, I I could do different things. And so I think Peter was thinking that we would do this record that'd be a little more vibe and, like, would have these sort of different musical textures and be more of a jam thing. Mm-hmm. Bob Weston, uh, Bob Weston's not about jamming, necessarily. <laughs> He's about, I mean, shellac is like, don't, you know. Um, so we would when we were writing those songs, we were just going to follow the same process that from time immemorial bands do and self-producing themselves. We're going to write as many songs as possible and then figure out 
you know, which ones would uh, stick. But I remember once we started recording, Peter was like, I want this to be a double record. I mm-hmm. think that this could be a double record. And as much as Bob and I would tease Peter about his pretty committed drug use, we were like, I don't know, dude, this is, I don't know if this is going to work. He was like, no, we want to do it. But there was like, I will say this, there was tension recording that record. There was tension recording that record. Well, a little Um, little tension's good. (laughs) A little tension's good. And I I listened to it the other day. I was like, God, this is what a strange record. Like, it's so weird. I, of course, still, I think Bob and I had our own sequence that would have been like eight to ten songs, Mm -hmm. and we would have been happy with that. And Peter was not having it. He had always... He'd wanted, he'd physically wanted to have a record that had a gatefold. Yeah. You know, he's a, yeah. he's a 60s, 70s baby. Like he wanted to make a big rock record that was expansive. And so he was into it and he thought we were kind of making some tracks that were textural enough that it could sustain it. How did he show you his songs? Like, I know he's a guitar player. Would he, would he pick up a guitar? Um, oh my God. It's so amazing. Oh God. He is a very, primitive now he's a better guitar player than before it's amazing he's still, you know he's still crushing at it like in his mid 60s mm-hmm. yep. like completely and i love i mean mini beast like i just love that he's doing it so much i'm like completely oblivious to whether or not i mean i don't think i would ever put on a mini beast record but like i've seen them a couple times and i just the sheer delight i feel about seeing him in his flow is just like nothing else and so it was a little funny because like, you know, I'm a guitar, I'm like a post-punk guy. So like, I'm into the idea of like, just playing simply. And like, I loved wire and I loved a lot of minimalism stuff, but I'm like, I'm a bit of a player a little bit, you know? And it was just so funny. Cause yeah, he would show his riffs on guitar. Yeah. And so you'd come down to the rehearsal space and he'd be like, gong, 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 gong. And I'd be like, okay, yeah, no, I get it. I get it. <laughs> you know, Do you mind if I embellish point. that a little bit? <laughs> yeah, no, sure. Yeah. I mean, he just was, yeah, exactly. It was exactly. It was yeah. so funny. And then I would embellish it. And he's like, no, 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 that's not what I showed you. I said, no, but you understand that this E is just a different voicing of that E. They're the same chord. They're not the same chord. Well, I mean, I know they're not the technically the same chord but they are the same thing and i could do so you know it was we would have those we would have those fights but obviously i mean it was peter's band but like and he was clearly super prolific but obviously you and bob were encouraged to write a hundred percent and peter in in that same way that he wanted to make a double album, he wanted a band that was more collaborative than the earlier iterations of the Suns. And like, yeah, it was clearly his band, but he was incredibly generous about that. And yeah, yeah. you know, Bob was like, "Oh my god, I have to write songs, but I love, the, I just want to play Volcano Sun songs." But he was like, "Okay, I'm gonna write some songs." And like, honestly, I think that. Um, it really opened up both of us. Like he, re- he really wanted, he really wanted that. He was really, I mean, think about it. Like we didn't record that record so much long. I mean, I, I don't think I had been in the band that long before we were in the studio, you know, it's like we did a tour or something and we were in the studio and it was like, 
you know, to, to think that the lead off track of that record is a song I wrote, like yeah. it's kind of, <laughs> it's beyond generous, really. He really wanted, he just was like, you know, I mean, I think a true artist it always looks at the work they do and wants to change it and rearrange it and not keep rehashing the same old stuff and not rest on stuff. And he that was the spirit with which he was approaching this record and this project and this iteration of the band. He was like, no, I want, you know, I want this to feel like it's a collaborative experience. I want this to feel like this is like a musical commune and we're all a part of it, you know. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this was recorded at Fort Apache South in Roxbury. I've heard a little bit about this original location that was like in a bit of a sketchy neighborhood. Is that is that this version of the of Fort Apache? Absolutely true. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that place was mythologized. But I have to say that um, the culture around... I mean, look... <laughs> like, I mean, Peter had recorded with those guys. I think he had recorded with Paul and Sean. I think maybe both records. I might be wrong about that. Um, oh no, no, I think he recorded. He recorded uh, All Night Lotus Party there, and I think they did Bumper Crop too. Maybe, so, maybe yeah, Farst worked with them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and. Yes, we are talking about the OG Fort Apache <laughs> industrial building that was absolutely precisely in a part of town that you would not want to be walking around it in, at night. Um, you know, so much of our in our in the way cities work has changed. It's not like it's gotten safer necessarily, but like you still had in Boston at that time, you know, kind of areas that would be more industrial and light manufacturing and stuff like warehouses and shitty places like that. And that were on the outskirts of town that, you know, now were developed into weird condos. And this was like, I can't remember what the bill. I remember the space so well. Uh, I remember that while Paul may have dipped into the original sessions, he was there maybe for some of the original tracking sessions. This became a fucking opus of like pickups. And I mean, Peter was psyched to make this a studio record and that was all Sean yeah. and Sean was, I mean, hilarious. I mean, he, like, I think he, he, I mean, those guys loved Peter. I mean, they had been huge Burma fans. And, like, um, Sean was just, like, a very sweet and hilarious and smart guy. And what I remember, there are a couple things I really remember about recording the record. I had a couple in-jokes that I, that kept coming up that were pretty great Sean had this way, particularly because there was maybe a little tension of like kind of rubber stamping shit and moving on. You know, if somebody made a suggestion and there was maybe going to be an argument about it or if it like something wasn't quite working, but he well, like the path of least resistance was to do it anyway, he would always be like, yeah, man, it really makes the song come alive. And I remember... 
I noticed him saying that a few times and then that became a repeater and a jerk. Like it became like, dude, it really comes alive. And I remember doing some tracking sessions with him when Peter and Bob weren't even there, which is crazy to me, but this is my real, I mean, these are my hardcore memories of like meeting him there and it's like rainy and it's like, it was shitty. It was like, there were like, you know, trucks, like, you know, 18 wheelers parked nearby. It was like, Oh God, it, the, the neighborhood it reminds me of is like a super industrial neighborhood in downtown Los Angeles where it's like, there's like shipping, plate, like there's places where like trucks are going in and out of next to like places that you're like, oh no, that can't be a residence, but it is, you know, mm-hmm. but it's kind of like you had this thing in there that you don't have elsewhere in Boston where it's like, it was pretty wide streets because trucks were going through and there was like this gas station on an island, whatever. I just remember meeting him there and like there was a classic 24 hour diner um, called Virginia, the Virginia diner, but they didn't call it the Virginia diner. They called it the vagina diner. (laughs) And it was where all the cops in Boston went. It's where you could find cops at three in the morning um, because it's sort of a hub it was sort of that area was kind of an intersection between where shit got really bad and like the rest of the city. Right. You know? so it, was a, it was a, it was very much a, um, yeah, that's what it was. Right. And um, I remember just hilarious, very cheap diner breakfasts with Sean and bonding with him and, he had been in a band. Those guys had been in the cheesiest band. Is that the sex execs or something yeah, like I that? Mean, come yeah. on. They were in the sex execs. Like they, they were like yeah. this new wave band. Um, but I got to say like Boston again in the seventies, late seventies, early eighties, like some of those new wave bands like pastiche and the sex execs really brought it. Like they mm-hmm. really brought it like that. I mean, I saw the sex execs once as a kid and they were like, they hit hard like they weren't like you know it wasn't i mean they were probably a little corny but like and they had definitely matching suits and stuff but like (laughs) you know yeah um they were legit and um you know those guys had a way you know this was happening everywhere but those guys had a really they were building the blueprint for indie rock recording Mm -hmm. you know like not being precious about stuff yeah um sort of just really letting bands do their thing mm-hmm. i mean thing of beauty is <laughs> is a testament to like a, no, a kind of a non-produced album i mean really when you think about it like no one sat there i mean i listen to some of the songs and i'm like wow that's like you know you could have maybe thought about doing i mean anybody who was like going to produce that record would have thought about rearranging but they they were doing already the thing that albini ended up had been doing which is like no you don't tell the bands what to do like you actually don't do that um you know but what was fun but at the same time they were very different like those guys did have tricks up their sleeve like they wanted to do they wanted to have some fun and 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 sean and Peter would just go like, I mean, I just remember there's some song on there called like Malmondo, which was just like, yeah. I remember that my percussion track was like beating some ashtray <laughs> and just like, what are we doing? And Bob and I would roll our eyes. It was very funny. I mean, it was really funny, I gotta say. And then, you know, it had some hard times. There was like, 
the we argued about whether or not this should be a double album. Like we, it was an argument. It was like it became. There are moments that became kind of petty and hard about that because we were kind of not we we thought it was going to be this rambling thing that you know honestly looking back on it like i could see how uh it could have been a shorter record it could have been a single record for sure but it's weird because in the way the fact that it's a double album does make it more distinctive i don't know i don't know i don't know what i'm saying i don't have much objectivity to it i feel like i feel like the thing I appreciate about a lot of musical artists and not many of them do it. And certainly not today. People don't do it. It's, you know, that, that constant dynamic between being able to perform or record a sense of inspiration. Like, I think that's what Jonathan Richmond is actually so brilliant at. If you see him perform and I've seen him perform many, many times, it seems like he's coming up with the song right as he's playing it like this is the first time he's playing it and i feel like guided by voices frankly has that quality too like you know these are unfinished ideas that are being laid down on tape for the first time yep and i think that that's sort of what we were going for Mm. and i think there are moments that are like that but i think that like you can feel that the record's a little bit fraught like there's some it's a real statement though doing a double album right yeah totally (laughs) yeah Okay, well, totally. that... it's, a, it's a statement. And, you know, it's a statement that ultimately I was not going to want to tell Peter Prescott he was not going <laughs> to make a statement about like, it was time to make a double album. It's the fourth, whatever the fifth album, like, it was time to make a double album. It's just yeah. so funny, because it's like, you make a double album when you guys have been playing together for years, and you hate each other. We had just started playing together, right. you know, <laughs> like, and it was a total and I was a different kind of guitar player for the band. Um and honestly, it was just like Peter wanted to experiment with a new process and a new way of doing things. And, you know, God bless him, because that's like among the many things he's taught me about what it means to actually be an artist is to constantly revive your own process, you know. Um, and- OK, well, you mentioned that you listened to the record recently. So let me test you a little bit and ask you about a few of these tracks, especially the ones that you wrote. Barricade, you mentioned one of yours, and it opens mm-hmm. the record. So that kind of speaks to Peter's view of the band as a as a democracy for sure. Like you, like you alluded to, is that sounds like Peter on vocals for that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he, what's cool about that is that Barricade lyrically, I mean, I had written that song about an ex girlfriend who had been involved in political organizing. And to me, I don't know what I was going to do with that song, because that was something I wrote before I was in the Suns. I don't know what I was going to do with that song. But I thought of that song very much as a like um, rip off of Mission to Burma. You know what I mean? Because like a lot of the Burma songs are about politics, like um, progress is just a deep cut of Burma's that's so good, you know. All I've got's what's on the walls, pictures of Marx and Chairman Mao. You know, it's just like, and there's a sort of like harmonically, there's this like second that's kind of like very Mishnah Burma, like dun, 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 or whatever. I don't know if, what that interval is. Maybe it's a sixth, but it's like, and then when I played it with Peter, 
what was so cool is that he came up with some background vocals that kind of like he didn't like the song was so written you know and yet he he just sang some words that syllabically fit and sort of emotionally fit and it didn't even matter like He's like, what year is it? What year the drama? It was just so funny just because it totally worked. Right. And it wasn't precious at all. So, yes, he is playing. He is singing uh, okay. the background. He was very he was into that song. I was surprised he was into that song because oh, yeah. I, I can see I you opening surprised. shows with it probably, too. Yeah, we did. We yeah. did. We absolutely did. And it, off of that record, I feel like it got a little bit of college radio play. I, like, I feel I like that was one yep. that yep. did. Um, it's the right choice sequencing wise, I, I would say for the, for the yeah. first track. Yep. Yeah. Uh, another one of yours, no place. Um, did you write <laughs> Bob's baseline for that? Cause it's got a very distinct mm, baseline. I'm going to kind of wow. That's so interesting. And, um, astute of you to ask that. I think I kind of did because it follows so much the guitar, mm-hmm. like, meow, meow, meow. Yeah. I feel like I probably kind of told him what to play yeah and that's you on vocals it's me on vocals warbly not like and like i listened to that i was like boy that could use some editing that song and like i was being an earnest young man trying to sing about gentrification in boston you know i mean like you want you wanted to sing your own songs or did peter no but that's what the song is like it was about gentrification and like i you know it doesn't make me cringe, but it was a little like, I know that Bob was like, I loved Bob. And again, we had so much fun. We really had fun. Like, got to understand, I'm saying there was tension. Like when we traveled, the three of us, when we, it, it was like, it was so much fun. And Peter always talked about how much fun it was because like, we, like while we might have fought a little bit in the studio, like we did not fight when we were on tour. We just had so we just had a great time. Um, but Bob definitely, I think there was a certain earnestness to my approach to songwriting that Bob probably rolled his eyes at a little bit because the brand of the Volcano Sons had been so like snarky, sarcastic, punk. You know what I mean? That's that's something you don't totally get unless you had seen their live shows. Those guys were very like punk rock in your face. Like John and Jeff had been very like, like we hate you and it doesn't matter. And they made a lot of sort of uncomfortable stonery in jokes that, you know, there was just, a, the vibe was just totally different. Mm-hmm. Bob and I were not like that at all. Um, but yeah, no place. Um, again, I was borrowing heavily, heavily from Mission of Burma, that like chord built in fourths, like, you know, yep. um, okay. Uh, noodle on the couch, another one of yours, yep. Yep. Some, like, also one of mine. we got some tape um, drag or something at, at the start of that one. Yes. Yeah. A tape drag for sure. I don't, I think that tape drag would have happened when we were laying back to two inch tape for the, like the submaster, you know, mm-hmm. um, I don't think it was intentional. It might've been an idea of Sean's. It may have been an idea of Sean's again, that break where it's like oh, that towards the end, this is like this descending, like all of her boyfriends that again, I thought I was in mission of Burma. I literally was like, Oh, I'm in mission of Burma. Like, I just was like, this is fantastic. I'm going to do, 
And it was just so great to hear Peter just sort of naturally, like with those songs, I have to say, it's like, I might've told Bob what to do or we had worked it out, but like I would come up with these parts. And again, this is a drummer I had known and seen and looked up to since I was like 14. And he was just playing exactly what, it's just such an unbelievable thing to be like, oh my God, this guy's playing exactly what I would have wanted to hear. Like it was wild. Mm-hmm. It really was wild. Peter's drumming is unbelievable. He's yeah, an he's unbelievable a, He's drummer. a great drummer. And, and to, to sing at the same time is just, yeah, it, it just so over seen, the top. <laughs> did you see the man? Did you ever see no, the sun? No, never. It was really a weird band. Like it was like all versions of it, but like Peter, like the way he, I don't know if you're a player, like, do you play guitar? I do. Play yeah, I play guitar. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So like, his drum, like he had this weird Slingerland kit that you would never use that had this weird hardware that like, it looked like cue balls that then you could pivot, you know, like, Mm -hmm. and he had his rack mounts like practically vertical. Like he was going like this and like, it had to be this really specific way the drums were set up. And like, I mean, his, if you listen and you kind of study it, but it really was a visual thing. Like his fills, especially like the, they're like somebody falling down the stairs. Like he, they weren't, he could easily do triplets and stuff, but he would often just go boom, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. it was just, and visually it was wild to watch and he hit really hard. Yeah. Like it was like, he loved method acting. He loved movies. He loved Scorsese. He was so about that. He loved Cassavetes. He, when he was behind the drum kit, here he is in this like arty rock band, but he's like, he's Robert De Niro in Raging Bull. Like, right. that's really <laughs> what he's about. Like, it's just like, it's about like, oh, it's primal screen therapy. Like, and we all like just shouted and like just did it. It was very, very, it was a very physical. I mean, good rock is. I mean, I'm not saying anything that's not like, I mean, whatever. Fugazi would have eaten our lunch on most nights, but like, his watching him play was just like mm-hmm. something to see. And like, it just very distinctive and unusual choices um, on the drum. I mean, he, he really has an inimitable style, mm-hmm. you know, for sure. Really, yeah, really for sure. He's also the only drummer I knew who was not at all anal about like tuning or anything. Mm. It's like, he would just like throw it like, and you'd be like, Oh, he had these loose clear heads. And he was just like, whatever. That's what, so that's another story. But, but when we recorded career and rock, it was like, Albini just was like, so I'm tuning your drums. Like that was the first day, you know, it's like, this is how I do it. You know, it was so funny. I wonder. The heads were loose and loud. And the whole thing was just like, you know, Jack Benny opening up the closet and things falling out. You know, it's just like <laughs> hilarious, you know. Did you ever play with No Means No? Um, I'm going to say that I don't think we ever had a gig with them. They were Canadian, right? Yeah, I'm just sing- a drummer who sings. <laughs> That's what made me think. Of oh, that. yeah. What yes, I remember cool them. Yeah. And I remember people talking about them for this very reason. Mm-hmm. Um Peter's singing was about the fact that, like, in Burma, um, they let him sing, and they wanted to be a collective. you got to understand what this legacy comes from. You probably do. I don't want to be pedantic here, but, like, it's something that really is just very interesting to me, which is when you look at certain bands 
like my favorite bands are the post-punk avant-garde, right? Mm -hmm. So they're basically taking the ethos of punk rock, which is let's simplify this and applying it in ways that were different than the, so, you know, the Sex Pistols, yeah, they're a traditional rock band in a lot of ways. And he, like, oh yeah, he sings out of tune. That's just the difference, right? But like, you know, obviously, like I'm saying the most obvious shit ever, but like, you know, you get into the fall, Wire, the Mekons, all those bands, like they're willfully taking an amateur approach, you know, raincoats, you know, to playing and like, no, we're going to play and we are not musicians. But part of that was also um, in a very postmodern way, breaking down the hierarchy of traditionally arranged rock and roll music. Mm -hmm. So like the gang of four who, believe me, sat around and talked about this shit. We're like, no, let's not, let's make the guitar the rhythm instrument and the bass the lead instrument. Right. Because yep. that's an inversion, that's socialism. You know, like that's going to reinvent, that's going to invert the hierarchy. The lead guitar shouldn't be the, the master, like owner, like we can be all that. And Burma, I mean, Burma just did that. And like they did that too, um, although, <laughs> you know, Roger Miller comes from a, like a pretty serious tradition of like, I mean, he had seen Hendrix. He had seen Hendrix as a kid. Like, he knew what was up. He's a lead guitar player for sure. But they really did experiment. You think about that's when I reached for my revolver. This The giant solo there is a bass solo, you know? So in that same spirit, they were going to have Peter be the lead instrument sometimes and be the lead singer. So, and he was. And so, you know, some of the later era Burma songs that he wrote, like Foreign Country, Blackboard, like we used to poke fun up with Peter because he was just trying to figure that stuff out but like they're great and it was wild to hear him sing and you were like whoa this band is really a collective like they're not this is an absolute commitment this is not one or two instruments accompanying another instrument this is a collection this is like an equal partnership did you ever play any of those songs in in Volcano Sons uh yes we did to Bob and I were like I mean it was like the kids stealing from the cookie jar. <laughs> like we were like, oh, come on, let's do certain fate. Right. And we did, we did. Yeah. And you know, I mean, I died and gone to heaven, like playing, I mean, this is insane. Um, yeah, yeah, it was great. We played certain fate and I would break out, you know, I would drive those guys, I'm that guy in band practice that's like annoying and breaks out the riffs that like, just to make everyone laugh and i was constantly breaking out burma lifts and peter would be like whatever i mean we made so many jokes about mission of burma especially when on a road we'd be driving and there'd be like we'd be listening to all things considered like the news would be saying and then some radio announcer would be saying like you have to understand back in 1917 and i said oh peter listen they're talking about mission of burma you know like it's <laughs> just like we were just like tease him endlessly about being the older guy it's funny he was in his early 30s we were in our early 20s right, you know? right. And, um we just would joke around but yeah noodle on the couch i feel like i feel <laughs> it's so funny like i think some of those songs are cool i feel like some of those are unfinished thoughts I feel like there's, a, I think Man Outstanding is on that record. And I'm like, I'm kind of happy about that. Even though it's a little buried in the mix, there's a kind of melodic guitar solo that I'm like, oh, that was pretty good, actually. Mm -hmm. um, 
then there are some songs where we switched up instruments like veteran i'm playing drum um and i could barely play drums mm -hmm. or, or am i playing drums or am i playing bass no or it's ba i can't remember i honestly i honestly can't remember there was one song where i'm playing drums and bob's playing guitar something we, we'd switch it up again in the spirit of like no, we are a we are collective. We're not a. Right. Uh, who's Mick Maldonado? He was a very good friend of Peter's, um, who was a musician. I can't remember. I think he had been in bands. He was married to the woman who did our cover art and had done the cover art for Bumper Crop and Barst. You know, just a really good friend. So Mick Maldonado. Yeah. Um, did he, he did he perform live with the band? No, no, he did. Did not. you do the samples live though? Um, yes, sometimes you know, it was so painfully analog about that stuff. Like, what we would do is, um, and it's hilarious this lead this way with Peter's current band. Like, he is up there making sounds with you know, giant thrift store bought keyboards and effects that like you could literally like some tiny processor could make the same sound, but it's just like this. We were the same way. We were like weird boom box with a pedal that Bob Weston had wired to go on and off <laughs> that had like a direct, a, a direct out, you know, and it would be random and right. Peter would find some like motivational speaker tapes or cassette tapes in a thrift store. It wasn't, you know, cause obviously tape manipulation was a big part of Burma, right? Like that was another part of that whole political thing we were talking about with Burma. Like, um, you know, the sound man is part of the band, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? He, we were all in this together, but Martin Swope's tape manipulation were like Brian Eno's and like, so we kind of were doing, trying to do that. Um, but like, I don't think we, I don't, I don't, I would guess we only played uh, Malmondo or whatever that song was, which is weirdly a, a take on Mick Maldonado's name. Um, we probably only play that live once or twice, right. like maybe for like the release party of Thing of Beauty. Like, I feel like we didn't really commit to doing that that much, but you know. There's some piano on, like, there's this some piano on like how to breathe is that roger by any chance I, that might be yeah. honestly yeah some maximum electric piano yeah that yeah. might be hmm. i can't remember wow okay have, another one of yours is fill the void so there's like the the kind of the talking part can a phone call change your life is that you yeah that's yeah. me and then who's doing the singing the the kind of the who's to blame uh, the who's to blame that's bob yeah Okay. That's Bob. I mean, the funny thing is that Bob has like, Bob had, and he never has, he, Bob could have been, oh, this is all the interesting dynamics. Bob was roommates with the guys in Buffalo Tom. Mm -hmm. And to that end, his taste in indie rock was very different than Peter's. Peter was like, not only more into classic rock, but he was also more into like, more obscure stuff. And he wasn't the hugest fan of like the straight up song based indie rock, even though he was like 
literally one of the architects of it, I think, <laughs> you know, he wasn't, he wasn't, but why I'm saying all this is that Bob Wesson could have, he had the most classic, he could have been the lead singer in an indie, like in some kind of like classic all rock band. He had that kind of like, he could sing, he could actually sing mm -hmm. and he had kind of a sweet voice and yeah, he's, he's saying that. Is, is that him singing on Kick Out the Jams? I think we all sang on Kick Out the Jams. Mm -hmm. Who who brought in what for covers? Um, I'm gonna be honest. It was always Peter. Yeah. It was always Peter. I mean, we we're playing his like mixtapes basically, and like you gotta understand, kick out the jams. Like Burma had done 1970. You know, like there was a bit. There was a like real like Iggy and the Stooges. I would venture to guess that like Roger Miller played Peter the Stooges endlessly because he had grown up in outside of Detroit and had seen them and had seen MC five. Um, and just, that was just, that was in Rogers DNA. And I think he shared that with Peter. So like, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the, the song hang up, that's almost like Peter solo. It, yeah. Did he do that live? like that yeah we did that live a couple yeah. times i actually always liked that song a lot and it's so angsty and like singing about his own dysfunction and like i think that if i were to make the like single album version that definitely lives on that record mm -hmm. it's, it a, just, it's, it's a it's pretty. a good song to have last as well yeah 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 do you know anything about the sample of the little kid? Do you know like any of these samples where they were sourced? No, from? and no. we were just really in a pre-litigious world of like, I mean, I don't think we could make those records mm -hmm. today because you would have to pay royal, you know, you'd have to figure it all out. Like we didn't, I have no idea. Peter, look, it was like, it, the life was playing shows in like Kalamazoo, Michigan, getting into the van, staying at somebody's house, getting into the van, going to the diner and then going to the nearest thrift shop. Mm -hmm. And while Bob and I would try to find cool shirts and Peter did too, Peter also would buy random cassette tapes. Did you, how did you do on tour? Um, sometimes, like there were some, honestly, we had some great shows as a band. Mm -hmm. um, we had the good fortune, me and Bob had the good fortune of being the only time that um, the Volcano Sons went to Europe. That was in this weird moment in history where in the late 80s, if you were an indie rock band from America, you could play literally anywhere and people would show up it yeah. was just like a thing if you're on sst too like i feel like it's so funny you're doing this podcast and it's about sst like i feel like the posters in europe were like they just had a large sst logo <laughs> even though i don't think like i mean i just don't i i feel like we weren't um necessarily part like it, it didn't feel like we were part of that but again you know the subtext of this is like I always try to explain this to people who are younger is that in the mid to late 80s, there was a sense that indie rock would break and Husker Du got signed to Warner Brothers and 
then it felt like that was over. Mm -hmm. Like people think it's this continuum that goes up and to the right and ends with Nirvana. But, you know, my friend started Matador Records in 1989 and we were all like, are you fucking crazy? Don't you get it? Like indie rock is over. It's over like it's, yeah. it's absolutely over. And like, so us being on SST, I think there was a little bit of a un unarticulated or not said out loud hope that like we would go the way of the Huskers. Cause you know, they did Zen Arcade and that was a double album and blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Double nickels on a dime, Minutemen. You know what I mean? It was like, there was a little bit of a like, oh wow, maybe we'll get into that space. But it's just so funny because it's like I I we I knew sorry had played gigs with the Hooskers and I was when they were on fire, they were Burma had broken up and they were the best band on the planet. They were literally I saw some shows by Husker do that like melted my face. In retrospect, for me, I don't connect with it as much. What I do will say is that what was so charming about them is that like I had a friend who toured with them as a roadie when like warehouse songs and stories came out, you know, mm -hmm. and like they were driving up to 2000 seat theaters, but instead of getting a bus, they had one, they just got two vans. They got like another van, you know what I mean? Cause they just didn't know how to, it was the life, you know, yeah, it was yeah. like we jam a cano that the that mike watts says it was like yeah. it was the indie rock live in a van dying probably a van. served them well though <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely yeah. and like i think that that was sort of probably in the back of now that i'm talking about this i think the other desire to do a double album came from the fact that sst was doing it mm -hmm. i mean sst was i mean their vibe while it was very much indie rock they also were very indulgent yep. <laughs> you know i mean yep. like there's some shit on that label that was so indulgent and like don't i know it <laughs> yeah i mean if you've studied it you're like what yeah they bite us and all this shit like what is really happening here yeah. um and i will say this that like we record the record uh i don't know what peter's relationship was like and how much he talked again and those guys but i remember i had a girlfriend who lived in Las Vegas. So I was going to take a trip out West and I was the guy in the band. Bob was the guy who did like all the business, right? Like he, cause he could, he could actually, he had studied electrical engineering. He could actually be somewhat coherent and like organize a ledger and stuff and like know what our budget was. Mm -hmm. But I was the guy that, cause I, and Peter was like, social but like could also be gruff and people would be like scared to talk to him sometimes and so i was like the goofy guy that was schmoozy and i my job was getting the money right. from the <laughs> like my job was getting the money unless but, they hey, didn't want to pay you and then it was peter's <laughs> oh yeah no they wouldn't have sent peter in there it wouldn't have gone well like you had you had to schmooze i was the schmoozer of the band for sure yeah. and um bob kept it on track and that's just how that worked I'm saying this because Thing of Beauty comes out or it's about to come out and we should do a requisite meeting with the label. But because I had this trip out to Vegas, I ended up um, 
meeting with Dukowski and Ginn in the Lawndale office. And again, like, I don't know, I'm of a certain vintage, you know, I'm getting in my late 50s, I'm 57 years old. And there's like, when it comes to indie rock, because I had a little bit of a career after the sons of doing indie rock music videos. Mm -hmm. Yep. And because my friends started Matador Records and because I had had this experience with Sorry, like I'm one of those people that kind of like I have like an, I feel a little Zellig vibes about my indie rock life. Like, you know, I've met people and been around stuff in a way that in retrospect, I can't really believe like and I certainly couldn't believe that I was sitting with Greg Ginn and Chuck Tukowski in like a weird conference room talking about like how they're going to roll out the record. Like I was like, how it was so weird too, because it's like the, the, the scene around the volcano suns was so East coast and so specific and such a legacy from Burma. Yeah. But then I go to this other place where also idols, I had seen black flag in 81 in Boston and honestly that the, one of their first all ages shows in Boston, was like, you know, it's a little bit like that famous show by the Sex Pistols in Manchester where like the fall get together and Joy Division get together. Like all the Boston hardcore kids were at that show yeah, yeah. and started bands because they saw, because Black Flag just fucking ripped everybody, melted everybody's face off. The opening band didn't show up. It was hot outside. It was this kind of like, nice club but it was during the middle of the day and they didn't give a fuck and they got on stage at two in the afternoon and it was like you know it's one of those things where like you can see in the door the sun's streaming through and you shouldn't be at a rock club and it was not rollins it was des cadena mm -hmm. and Ginn was just like oh my god like he just had that dan electro with this awful ugly sounding pv stack and it was just horrible <laughs> and, like, robo was on drums and they were just unbelievable like i just it was unbelievable and so and dukowski was on bass and like unbelievable and they, they played two sets back to back because the opening band didn't show up <laughs> and we were all and all the guys in mission of burma were there by the way wow, wow. um but then like all the kids all the guys who started ssd and dys and negative effects they were all there it was a seminal moment for the boston hardcore scene and the thing is, I wait, this is a lie, actually, because the timing I'm I'm what I'm saying here is that I said earlier that we recorded Thing of Beauty not long after I joined the band. That's not true. I was I'm on Farst. Yeah, you're on it. Yep. I was finishing. They were finishing Farst and Chuck was kind of like, like, oh, maybe we'll be he'll be the two guitar. But I did the Farst tour. Chuck did not do the first story. Okay. He was out of there. I just assumed you were, you know, invited in as a friend of Chuck's or something. I was the, it was the transition period. And Chuck was like kind of not wanting to let it go, but then he let it go. And so it was weird. So that's the other thing that's weird about Thing of Beauty too, is that like, that was really my first experience recording a record with the band. Right. Although I, I am on first. I like, I played a lot of that stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What, what can you tell me about this, about Eleanor Ramsey's cover art? Was it, is, did she take this photo or is this no, stolen from I'd somewhere? No, I definitely found photos. We would be sued. It, I'm sure, <laughs> again, I talked about the life and going to thrift stores and stuff. I mean, 
you know, Peter sung about it in his, you know, his probably one of his most famous songs is White Elephant. Like he was a thrift store garage sale collector of stuff that most folks ignore as he sings. And, you know, he was that record store guy that finds the weird thing. And I think he found at some thrift store found all this commercial artwork and posters and stuff. And that was one of them. And he he we appropriated it. And I think Eleanor would have had the wherewithal to understand that if we manipulated enough, we were okay. But again, this is for, before the world got too litigious, and it's also pre-digital culture, you know, like very pre-digital. Okay, so when you left the band, did you go back to to art school? Yes, I did. Yeah, and like you've talked about Matador a little bit, it seems like you almost became like the in-house video director, almost. That's true. I did. Yeah. I, I was I was the in-house video director at Matador in a way. Um, and it was fantastic. You know, it was like, it was so great. I mean, really my claim to fame and just making a, the, the thing again, it's pre-internet, right? So you're not in an economy of views. However, at that time you could see the correlation between album sales and a band getting even one play on 120 minutes. Right. So it was worth it if you were a nickel and dime indie rock record label to spend $5,000 on a helium video. Yeah. For it to get one play on 120 minutes. Oh, well, I mean, people like me were so starved for that kind of stuff though, too. Like one play is, is all it takes. You know what I mean? Because it's a niche, because it's a niche market. Well, also, and people did have VCRs yep. they could set at night. So, yep. like, even though you had to wake up and go to high school the next day, you recorded it and you studied it. Yeah, that's um, true. And yep. you were, and it was literally like the announcement for what records were out. So there was no way they weren't going to make videos. They weren't going to spend any money on the videos. And I, um, God, I mean, I love. I mean, it was so. What was so fun about making it a helium video is that then like it was on Beavis and Butthead and it really helped the band. Did they like it? Yeah, they loved it. Well, Mike Judge has like, who I've subsequently met briefly because a good friend of mine works with him a lot. Like, I mean, he has impeccable, he actually has impeccable taste in music. Like he's a music person, he gets it. Yeah. So that was highly curated. Like if you went back and looked at those episodes, you'd be like, they favor even if they shit talk a song, they kind of, he favors bands that he thinks are cool. Right. You know, (laughs) Um, and he gives them exposure. It was a massive platform. Absolutely. Massive platform. Uh, I I'm Canadian. So I have to ask you about working with the hardship post. How did that happen? Oh my God. um, That was um, through sub pop. Um, I don't, I believe their video commissioner, I don't know. I mean, I, the thing is I was repped by a production company for a minute and it might've come about through that. I, I gotta say, I kind of like, I loved working with them and making that video. I don't think they liked the video, which was too bad, mm. but I really like, 
I thought they were so, I mean, that's a band that like, they were so weird and good. And like, I mean, you talk about vitamin and boys life, these bands that I was like, oh my God, this is what they're doing. This is what, you know, they're like this quirky indie rock band, mm -hmm. quirky, like art rock band that I was well, I was just super comfortable with what they were doing. I really got what they were doing. I feel like it was always about making shit look obviously it's, it's saying the obvious. you're trying to make shit look cool for as little money as possible and it was always about shooting on location mm -hmm. for me and kind of shooting bands and giving because you couldn't build sets right i couldn't um and i usually didn't have enough film to roll entire takes of the song so like i knew where i was going to go in every section of the song like i wasn't gonna they weren't gonna be here during the verse they were gonna be here during the courses and that's like you know i had to be surgical about it it's weird like people don't even remotely think about that shit anymore like yeah. they don't they don't have to yeah we live in digital continuous role um and plus you can just make it on your iphone right yeah you could just make it yeah <laughs> you could absolutely make any of that and we could absolutely do that so i like you know all those videos were shot on 16 millimeter and using mirrors always lent something and i thought that halifax was awesome um and i really liked the scene there and um it was fun i don't think i think he weirdly had issues with the video which is weird to me um i think he felt like i don't know it was so funny in that time because i sort of bonded with bands because i had been in this right strange indie rock band and i knew what it was like to be in a band and that was my sort of way to get these shoegazy like every band i did a video for didn't want to do a video <laughs> like helium was like i don't want to do we don't i don't want to i was like no you you i know this is weird but like as a young woman like looking the way you you have to look at the camera mm -hmm. you actually have to look at the camera this is going to go but trust me on this you know shit like that and like i think that for a hardship post like <laughs> i think it was like that video was like too slick for them or something <laughs> which is funny you got to work with peter again in customized yes i did and again bob moses who was the roadie of mission of burma was in customized mm. And this is the same Bob Moses that you wrote the book with. Yes, that's right. It's all lining up. Yep. <laughs> yep. So you, yeah, yeah. This is all, that's right. And like, I feel bad in a way because I slightly, all the guys that ran Matador were, were honestly my, some, my closest friends. And I was a little like, forceful i was like you gotta sign customized you gotta it's gonna be great you guys yeah. i don't know if that was the best decision they ever made <laughs> the only other time i did that and not that i had really anything to do with it but i shot i didn't direct but i shot the i am a scientist video and there was a bit of a bidding war for guided by voices mm -hmm. um and i was like and i'm not saying that i swung it at all like he loved matt Pollard loved Matador, but like, I was like, he was thinking about Warner Brothers. Right. Uh, and I was like, you, you just, you gotta, you gotta go with Matador and think about that. Like, yeah, no, th those, 
I mean, I don't know if you like that band at all. And I like, do. you know, Peter Prescott wouldn't like that band at all. But like, I've worked with Pollard a couple times and I see Pollard and Prescott in the same vein. Like, yeah. they're just waking up, having a cup of coffee and thinking about what song they're writing that day. <laughs> like, that's that's who they are. That's pretty, and, tough, to, pretty tough to keep yeah, up with Robert and, Pollard for sure. Yeah, for I mean, he's, unbe- he's, yeah. He, he's unbelievable. He was unbelievable. He's an unbelievable. I mean, whatever. I mean, I don't know how you don't have to have me say that, but like just a giant force of nature in terms of creativity and being prolific. But like, um, you know, when you think about the peak era Matador records that they put out, like I can't even really wrap my brain around the three fold punch of, you know, alien lanes, uh, under the the stars and uh what was the first one with buzzards and dreadful crows um b thousand like it was just those three records are just like i mean send them in a to space for aliens to find i mean they're they're incredible rock records yeah are the high cameras are they still an active band (laughs) we played the other night okay it's yeah it's dad rock yeah um but we have some new songs and I think they're good and we're kind of like a little louder than you think based on the recording. That recording was like a demo tape that we did years ago. And during the pandemic, I did that goofy thing where at eight o'clock at night when people were banging pots and pans for people, right. I brought my guitar out, uh, my amp out and played guitar. And I posted that on Instagram and the guy who had recorded our demo tape was like, you should just, somebody should do something with that. And the, the release was that, yeah, these guys, Houndstooth Cottage in um, Miami, put it out. They put out, we remixed the demo tape, but hmm. I mean, it's a very, like, we're a little more put together than the demo tape, I would say. And yeah, we're, we're going to try to get gigs. I mean, it's really hard. Every member of the band has kids, has jobs. Yep. You know, it's that it's that hard thing. Like we're a little we always joke about, I don't know if you know that Instagram account Rigs of Dad. I do. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bad. Yeah. But like we played a show the other night and when people who just randomly that I randomly know from work or whatever show up, they're always like, what the fuck? I mean, I didn't know you wrote songs. Like I didn't, you know you know we're kind of good adam's a great drummer i mean he's just great and jeff said they're just it's a great it's we you know it's so funny and all this it's like obviously i've been babbling for so long and like i come from people who were very in their heads and talked a lot but one of the absolute joys about playing music as you know is that you know, you communicate without talking and it's just the, it, to me, it's the highest form of existence. And like, I'm grateful to be even just doing it on any level. Like, it's just, it's the best thing to like, we might not play together for three or six months, but then I'll get in a room and they'll barely say anything. We just start playing. And it's just like, there's nothing better than that, you know? Yeah. And I certainly wouldn't have learned that ethos without having played with Peter. I mean, he 
I, I always want to encourage after customize and before what he's doing now, I was like, Pete, you should just like weirdly become a solo artist. And like, you should do tours where you have a band that's like a super group that plays some of your best songs from Mission of Burma and from Customized and from Volcano Sons. And you know, whatever. Yeah. Don't tell an artist what to do and he's going to do what he <laughs> wants to do. I mean, Mini Beast is like impossible. Like you would, <laughs> Bob Weston and I just joke about it so much. But then when you see them live, you're like, oh my God, he's really doing it. And guess what? No one else is doing it. Yeah. And guess what? In the age of AI and quantized bullshit, that is literally the farthest thing from that. I mean, it's literally the farthest. It's people in the moment just like crazily improvising loud rock music. And it's a beautiful thing. It's it's that is the thing of beauty. <laughs> <laughs> so there's been lots of books and discussion especially in the last five years, five, 10 years, shows like ours, kind of revisiting indie rock of the 80s and 90s. You've obviously talked to a lot of bands, you know, post-Volcano Suns through your career. Do you think the, the Suns get their due? Um, wow, that's a really interesting question. I... have a distorted perception because my fondness for Mission of Burma was so over the top and that bled into my fondness for the Volcano Suns before I was in the Volcano Suns. Right. I think, I don't think short of someone writing a lot about like, Peter Prescott in the way that like people talk about Robert Pollard, I would feel that the Suns got their due. Like, I feel like it really makes sense to me. I think it reached the widest audience it could. I think that Peter, like many great artists, there's a little element of self-sabotage. And I feel like what's so interesting about indie rock in general and the culture of indie rock is that it precipitated such a massive shift in rock and roll, which was Nirvana. Yep. I mean, whatever you say about Nirvana, that Nirvana itself sort of eclipsed all the shit that came before it a little bit. Like people, it almost seems like it's in a vacuum. And I know Michael Azarad who wrote that book, The Road to Nirvana, and he'll give a shout out to all the bands, but people forget like, I mean, there's so many great bands. I mean, I don't know. If, I think a lot of bands didn't get their due. Yeah. You know? And I don't, I mean, I don't think that like, I think it, if framed correctly, a greatest hits of Volcano Suns records would be like one of the best indie rock records you've ever heard. But at the same time, it's such a unique and distinct and weird band that like you kind of had to be there to see it. Like you kind of had to, it was a moment in time that, you know, is no longer there. So I don't know. I think that, I mean, I was like super proud and psyched to Pete that like um, White Lotus Party did as well as it did. You know, like White Elephant got a placement in a Pepe Jeans commercial. He made money off of that. Oh, wow. um, 
Byron Coley, I think, did a profile of them for Spin Magazine. So it's like you, the Volcano Sons were like in grocery stores, you know? Like, <laughs> so I just think that, like, you know, the rock thing is so much like so many of the commercial arts, it's like so much about luck and timing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'll never forget coming back to Boston, driving back to Boston after being on tour with the Suns for five weeks and we're in the van and we're listening to the commercial rock radio st- one of the AOR radio stations, FM. Like we don't even have this formatting anymore, but like a radio station that was like definitely playing Zeppelin and ACDC exclusively and yeah. Def Leppard, you know. And when they were playing t- Smells Like Teen Spirit in the middle of the fucking day, we were like, oh, shit. Wow, this thing happened. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you could feel it. And you could feel it from Peter. Like, he knew. And, you know, I don't think Peter's ever sat down to listen to Nirvana. Mm-hmm. But, like, <laughs> yeah. I'm mean, just telling you, like, a lot of that shit was just way ahead of its time. Yeah, for sure. And Burma was ahead of its time and then got its due because it had its reunion in the same way the Suns were ahead of the time, but like never really. I mean, Burma was, I mean, Burma is an exceptional, exceptional musical outfit, like mm-hmm. just those guys are highest level. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know how to answer that really. I don't, I think that like, I think that there could be a revisitation of the Volcano Suns that would be really interesting. And I, I definitely, the last record we made, Career in Rock, like, I know that in the, you know, nooks and crannies of the internet that there's some fandom around that record. Like, mm-hmm. people are like, that's a weirdly good record that falls through the cracks. Because um, that's a weird record. I mean, that's really a collaboration of us and Steve Albini. Like, right. You know, it's a really different sound, but there's some kind of cool songs on it. And it's like a little more focused than any Suns record. And um, it's a cool record, you know, but I don't know. I don't know. And in terms of like, if you're talking about this in the context of SST, like I have no idea what those guys really thought. I think, I feel like they were at a stage with the label where they were just going to like keep it going and, right i mean they were just gonna put out anything and the sons were like legit and had a legacy and yeah i think that peter was like it makes sense like burma could never have been on sst but like pete like he had kind of more of a sensibility and a vibe that that vibed with again and those guys a little bit like i don't think he hung out with them that much but he like i mean pete understood like more classic and like psychedelic rock and shit like i you know i feel like those guys could bro down a little bit more. Yeah. But Pete and I would fight because Pete loved the butthole surfers, you know? And yeah. I'm like, I don't know. It's kind of bordering on joke rock. Like, I get it, but no, you know? <laughs> so, like, he was, like, we had some musical differences a little bit. And yet he's written some of the greatest rock music I've ever heard to me, you know? So, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. What do you, I mean, I, I think it's really weird to put there's a lot of context behind um, the Volcano Suns. If you care about the story, you know, the, the sort of legacy of underground rock in Boston. 
that would, and I'm sure it was all lost on like being in the midst of SST. Like, I don't think, you know what I mean? Like it wasn't really, but those guys helped us and they did support tours for sure. Um, I, I think they were, I think, I don't know, you would know better than I would because you've studied this stuff now, but I think I felt like we were on the crest of the, the label becoming like, it was just going overboard. Like it was just like, there's a lot of things. Yeah. They kind of already have in some ways by this, by this point, but there's, there's still some gems and this is most definitely one of them. So David, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, I thank you for letting me talk about it. I feel scared for your editing job. <laughs> no, it's <laughs> <Or> genuinely, <laughs> genuinely. Yeah. But um, yeah, good luck with your project, and I really, really appreciate it. And you know, to anyone listening, you know, it's the thing. The 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 thing I would always say is what it's the Mike Watt mantra: like, go out and start your own band for sure. (laughs) Thanks so much. Take it easy. Thanks. Have a great night. You too. Bye. Awesome. Definitely hear a lot of respect from Mm -hmm. David for all of those musicians that he played with over the years and all those bands in that scene. Hey, and I mean, um, very interesting to hear him talk about people like Peter or Roger Miller too, about how like they are just always thinking about their art. Yeah. They're true artists, right? Yeah, and that certainly comes through in every Volcano Suns record, I would say. Yeah, you can hear the passion and pride when he speaks about uh, Boston music from his era. Um, his portrait of Peter as a true artist, you know, when I ask him at the end if if um, the Suns got their due, he kind of says it, it's like Peter who never got his due Yeah, right? as an artist. Very long pause when you asked him that too. Mm-hmm. I was just like, oh, yeah, no doubt. His... Um, <laughs> what he calls his irrational love for Mission of Burma. We don't get into it in the interview because we ran out of time, but his history with Burma came full circle. He and Jeffrey Awanaki directed the 2006 documentary, Not a Photograph, which just oh, yeah. rules. Um, that classic Ruins single he mentions on Ace of Hearts, um, it just rules. You can hear it on the 12 Classic 45s comp, Mm -hmm. Uh, along um, with the Neats, Mission of Burma, and some other great Boston bands. Um, He mentions all of those incredible releases on Homestead, uh, which rivaled SST at one point, I think it's fair to say, as far as quality of output for like seminal records. Definitely. And for me, Sorry's 1986 album, The Way It Is, is in the conversation with some of those records. It's so good, hey? Yeah. So good. Uh, Homestead definitely also rivaled SST for overall output, <laughs> I would say. Maybe, maybe. I mean, I'd say Homestead went into kind of a weird sidebar near the end and then fizzled out a lot faster than SST did. Yeah, but they were cranking out records and their sidebar wasn't that different from SST. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, they were putting out jazz records and all kinds of stuff at the end. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Ace of Hearts, and we talked about that on episode 210, as well as the great ARF Records, which is another uh, archival Boston label that people should check out. But I wanted to, in honor of David's spiels, 
and reverence for that scene, that era, and all of those musicians in the community. I wanted to mention another label from around that time and around that geographic location, the Throbbing Lobster label. Do you know this one, Brant? Yeah. I, are, do Volcano Suns not have a release on Throbbing Lobster? I don't think so. I think they're just... or something? No, nah, I don't think so. I think it's just Homestead. Um, but there is a Volcano Suns song on one of these comps. I want to mention um, this label, Throbbing Lobster, from Brookline, Massachusetts, seems to have been put out by or, or headed by a guy named Chuck Warner. And you can read up like an annotated discography of Throbbing Lobster Records. You can check that out at mesthetics.com. Sounds like Chuck was a DJ and then he started putting out comps and then some releases by some of these bands. This is the first one here called Nobody Gets on the Guest List, the Throbbing Lobster compilation. And it's got bands like The Flies, Hopelessly Obscure, Prime Movers, uh, Johnny and the Jumper Cables, Chainlink Fence, um, some great Boston area bands on here. Very cool. The next one out on Throbbing Lobster is called Let's Breed, part two of the Throbbing Lobster saga. This has got Scruffy the Cat on it, Christmas, uh, Blackjacks, Busted Statues are on here, The Flies again, Dump Truck, Prime Movers. Um, and then this record, this is probably the one you see around the most called Claws. This has got Volcano Suns doing the song Tree Stomp on here. It's also got Prime Movers again. It has the Prime Evils. This is John Felice's band mm -hmm. after the Real Kids. Awesome. Classic Ruins are on here. But anyways, Throbbing Lobster, cool label. Lots of those bands have got releases on Throbbing Lobster and some of them like Blackjacks. Uh, they put out a record on Homestead as well. Another so, killer record, actually. Yeah, I bet you yep. you'd like those guys. Yep. But, you know, if you want to do a deep dive into the Boston scene, obviously, you know, Mission to Burma. We're going to go into this Volcano Suns record. We talked about Sorry, but Ace of Hearts, ARF Records, and then also this Throbbing Lobster label. Mm -hmm. Wicked name for a, for a label, by the way. A few of the other things that we didn't... I, I had so many more questions for David, but, uh, you know, I was trying to be mindful of his time and our listeners' time as well. Um, just some of the bands he's directed videos for. Mm. The Fall... Girls Against Boys, New Bomb Turks, Guided by Voices, Silkworm, Torch, Wesley Willis, The Hardship Post, Ryan. Yeah, I know. Cool. <laughs> He's also done tons of work, um, other work as a producer and director, editor for all sorts of projects. On top of the Burma doc, he's currently in production on one for his dad, actually, David Clyler Sr., called Films in the Living Room. He mentions uh, his dad uh, screening films in his home, like, well, he's 78 now, and uh, he's still doing it. He's still doing these screenings. Uh, he's been doing it for 50 years, and, and David's making a documentary about it. That sounds cool. Yeah. That should, that should be documented. Yeah, you can see a lot of the projects he's worked on and most of the videos on his YouTube channel, David Kleiler's YouTube channel. There's also his new band, High Cameras. Uh, there's a four-song EP. In, in fact, yeah. that's the title of it up on their band camp, four-song EP. David on guitar and vocals, Jeff Kwong on bass and vocals, and Adam Wade of Jawbox, uh, Shudder to Think on drums. Mm -hmm. Mastered by, who else? Bob Weston. Bob's kind of the JG of the, 
you know, the last 20 years or so, hey? Totally. Yeah. There, there, there's a, a reference. There's not much description, but there's a reference to Volcano Suns in Joe Carducci's Rock and the Pop Narcotic mm-hmm. in the 90s miscellaneous era. Uh, and he's talking about kind of like the the Chicago scene in there. Yeah. And every band he mentions, Bob Weston has like produced or recorded or ever, or was in. Yeah. Did you check out the high cameras? It's cool. It's like oh uh, yeah, they've oh, got yeah, that. Sure. They've got that '90s indie rock sound kind of dialed. You know. Definitely. Should we get into this record, Ryan? Yeah, man. History lesson part two. So Brent, we don't have the spaceman out of the SST catalog to kick off history lesson part two anymore. But thankfully we've got a spiel on this record from Andrew Earls, also from Gimme Indie Rock. So let me lay this on for you. And Andrew, of course, he's listing, you know, the 500 essential American underground rock albums from 1981 to 1996. He puts in uh, two records by Volcano Sons. One is uh, Bright Orange Years, which I think, most people point to as their favorite one. Not mine, but it's still awesome. Don't get me wrong. He points out Bright Orange Years and this one, Thing of Beauty. And here's what Andrew says. Two albums into its relationship with SST, the noisier and spottier but fun first from 1987 was the band's first for the label, and four albums into the larger game, Volcano Suns delivered a double-length set of songs with Thing of Beauty, the album that seemed to be the reason why the band was put on the earth. The accomplished songwriting that finally found harmony with the band's obvious Jones for noisier arrangements makes for less of the unfocused and unneeded chaos of the previous two albums without sacrificing any of the energy, charm, manic drive, or punchy dynamics. That thing of beauty is the band's best should be partially credited to guitarist David Clyler, co-founder of Boston's Sorry, who played some guitar on Farst, coming in as the full-time replacement for Chuck Hahn, himself the replacement for original guitarist John William, and the writer behind a decent chunk of the double album. Side 4 is all covers. That's not quite right. Yeah. Side 4 is all covers, with Volcano Sun's treatment given to Brian Eno's Needles in the Camel's Eye, Devo's Red Eye Express, and the MC5s kick out the jams. So interesting, you often hear the bright orange years. Um, you know, David certainly has his favorite Suns records. Sounds like he, you know, he he definitely had a good time with career in rock. I don't usually see Thing of Beauty listed as their best, but Andrew certainly thinks it is, and it is an amazing record. Yeah. So it was engineered by Paul Coldry, uh, who we had on as a guest for episode yeah. 216. Uh, and Sean Slade recorded at Fort Apache South, Roxbury, and then the liner notes say "Rest in Peace" because it was that location was closed. I'm assuming by the time this came out, no info on when it was recorded, but it came out around November of 1989. It was released as a double LP, CD, and cassette. The CD has two extra tracks, which we'll get into here as we go through this. All three members can contribute to songwriting. Track one, side one, Barricade, written by David. We've got an opening sample of a cheering crowd. Mick Maldonado on samples. We, we talk about Mick in the interview. This is a perfect opener. The harmonies, the, the kind of exuberant vibe might be um, 
Peter's vocal, but it sounds exactly like what Volcano's sons should sound like to me. (laughs) I said, I wrote down immediately sounds like Volcano's sons, like right immediately. And it's definitely Peter for me. Yeah. That noisy middle section, Bob's bass tone, which I'm sure we'll be talking about more as we go through the tracks. The line about those people in elevators are going down and then they do that kind of descending riff. Um, Sometimes when he speaks, kind of speak singing like he does at the end of this song. Peter sounds exactly like Lou Reed to me. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I had very similar comments though. I wrote down, I can't get enough of Bob Weston's bass on this record. Yeah. I wrote that down. There's definitely a few overdubs on guitar. There's like a clean one, a jangly one and a distorted one. Very layered for me. Peter's vocals are the highlight though. There's this dissonance, and resolution in the melody that is just so Volcano Suns. And it, it kind of begins and ends with crowd noise and then also a, an excellent reverb splash at the end too. Yeah. Uh, the next one is It's a Conspiracy, written by Peter. So for me, even though Bob and David have songs on the record, over half were written by Peter and you know his songs are definitely sound like Peter's songs. Um, the the atmospherics the band create like the dissonant chords definitely work well with the theme of this song or at least what i think the theme is the paranoia uh, yeah pro-lifers who later became snipers only a crackpot would suspect a conspiracy yeah i had definite like dinosaur junior guitar vibes on this track and just the fuzzy noisiness. It could be on the self-titled Homestead album by Dinosaur Jr. for me. Great noisy song. Um, and there's also some samples in the middle, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they used samples the way Burma used samples. More, less, sometimes the samples are super, super obvious. Sometimes they're just kind of buried in the mix almost. Yeah, texture. Yeah. Uh, track three, Man outstanding written by peter this sounds like burma to me like a lot of his songs do and Mm. uh, you know he wrote songs for mission to burma so that's natural that they would sound like that uh some killer melodic fuzz bass soloing in this song yeah david too rips out a real fret melter yeah courageous stunts written by peter some thurston uh thurston morley ronaldo sounding stuff on this song and this album uh that clean guitar tone is very 90s indie rock um i like when peter really hollers like he does in this song Mm -hmm. good time changes in this song too yeah and then closing out side a is no place written by david that bass tone just so heavy again this this is totally the sound so many 90s indie rocks band would go on to to cop and take to greater recognition like it sounds like shudder to think or maybe even early Smashing Pumpkins or something like that. Oh, yeah. It's just the pinnacle of post-punk Bob Weston bass for me. Yep. Okay, flipping the record over. Noodle on the Couch, written by David. That tape drag at the beginning, using samples, you know, again, the way Mission of Burma did, just super low in the mix, not, not really overt, just kind of creating ambience. Like how the guitar is panned almost hard left and the sample hard right, but when the sample drop drops out in what could be considered the chorus of this song, I suppose mm. the 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 sample drops out and uh, and this guitar pops into the mix. 
Um, this is a good headphone record. I don't usually say that because it's, you know, it's kind of cheesy to say this is a headphone record, but um, <laughs> it kind of is. Yeah. Well, I picked it up. The vocals on this record and the layers of guitar. Uh, there's great dual vocals on this track in particular too. And sometimes there's even like three part harmony on the vocals on this record. Yeah. So definitely has a lot of nuance. Yeah. You know, like when you see no means no live and they're doing that thing where they're all just kind of shouting a heart, but they're harmonizing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like I bet volcano sons kind of did that. This is a this song has the has the lyric when he was 12 years old he only liked kiss. And the next track is Ask the Pundits written by Peter. Uh, the drums sound kind of doubled throughout this, but they're out of sync and it creates a, a cool effect. Um, I guess the song is maybe a takedown of reviewers and punditude, at least that's my read of of the lyrics. You know, we've seen this proliferation of pundits and and so-called experts that is only grown in the 34 years since this came out. Yeah, I love David's tone on this track. Just so awesome. Total signature sound for Volcano Suns for me by this point. Also some keyboards accenting in the middle section. Brings some new interesting dynamics, but I mean, it's totally fair game for Volcano Suns to have more keyboards like this. Yeah. Uh, the next one is Arm and a Leg, written by Peter this song actually think made me think of Sebado every time I heard it this week. I think. Oh yeah. I think it's the guitar playing. It's yeah, the guitar and bass interplay. I wrote down here. It's like this is exactly the guitar and bass interplay that just a couple of years later mm -hmm. would be exactly what every record executive was looking for. I wrote that down for this song. Like again, they're like three years ahead of their time here. Yeah. Well, Sebado, right? Give me indie rock. Like, okay, uh, the next one, How to Breathe, written by Peter. We've got some piano again, um, possibly some maximum electric piano. This band band could really raise, like, you know, a ruckus of noise when they wanted to, like, and like they do at the end of this track. Yeah, it's another anthemic, melodic killer song to start right off the bat, and then it kind of gets noisy with, you know, sections you're kind of like, is that the chorus? I can't tell. Um, and then you're like, nah, it's just Volcano Suns. This is the epicness of Volcano Suns that uh, Alexandros mentions in We Can Be the New Wind. Yep. And then we've got Right of Way, written by Bob. Um, Bob and Peter together on vocals, some great noisy wild guitar from David. When that big dirge riff comes in about three quarters of the way through and, and they slow the tempo down, that part's really cool. Yeah, and a maniacal laugh from Peter. That's kind of his signature too. Yeah. And then we're on to the second record. So track C1, soft hit written by Peter. Samples of maybe like a looping military parade or something. Um, sometimes Peter, to me, really, I maybe even said this last time, sounds a little bit like Jeff Pizzotti of Naked Ray Gun. Mm -hmm. um, those discordant keyboard flourishes are well-placed in this song. Great chorus, too, pounded to a pulp by Killer Kindness. And then we've got uh, Peter's track, Malamondo, a percussive kind of music concrete style piece, I guess, a play on the name of, of the guy that had well, was doing most of the samples, Mick Maldonado. 
interesting interlude. It's kind of one of those ones that I bet you if, you know, when David's talking about this, perhaps being just a single length record, maybe drop this one off. But on a double LP like this, I'm in. Yeah, well, you'd expect more stuff like this actually on a double LP just to to fill, fill up space, you know? Yeah, well, arguably, there's more stuff like this on Zen Arcade, for example, yeah, and there's absolute and there's absolutely none of it on Double Nickels. Yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> okay, uh, the next one is "Deeply Moved," written by Peter. This is a weird, moody song, uh, but I like it. Sounds like a a sample from a movie or something. I couldn't source it though. Yeah, bass sliding radness from Bob again for me. Love it. Then we've got. Now File, written by Peter. This track's just a straight-up rocker, a little chaotic. Sometimes Bob's playing reminds me of early Minutemen when Watt used a pick. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Where's the Now File? Yep. The next one is Fill the Void, written by David. We talked about this a bit in the interview, David doing the spoken part and Bob singing in the chorus. Uh, I love the, the lyrics. Money can't fill it. Sex can't fill it. Indie rock can't fill it. Uh, Peter just getting increasingly savage at the end, vocally. Yeah, the, this song really kicks in, though, with quite a moment of just amazing chord sequences that, like, this is the last track on side three, and it's still just awesome. Yeah. And then we're flipping the record over to the final side, Nightmare Country, written by Peter. Some gnarly feedback, almost sounds like a theremin or something. Maybe it is. Um, the guitar riffs are kind of early super chunky for me. Like, we've just seen so much of this on the show. These bands that truly were the blueprint for 90s indie rock. And some of it is in David's guitar tone as well. Yes. I guess I've just never really focused on it to the degree that I have while we've been kind of doing this project, like as far as the blueprint of that sound. Um, this one's a deep cut buried you know, towards the end of the album, which is always a solid move on a long album. Love the ending with the sample and kind of the false ending and then, and then the reprise. I kind of thought that, you know, those sounds that you're, you're mentioning, they almost sound like a siren and I was, and Peter's vocals kind of sound like they're sung through a megaphone. And so I was wondering if it's one of those megaphones that has the siren sound on oh, it. Oh, maybe. Yep. Maybe that's what they're using on this track. Just a guess. Yep. Okay, and then we get into one of the covers, Needles in the Camel's Eye, written by Brian Eno and Phil Mazanera. Uh, the opening track on Brian Eno's debut solo album, 1973, is Here Come the Warm Jets. Obviously, he and Phil were in Roxy Music together. Phil plays guitar on the record, on the original, along with Chris Spedding. Uh, Robert Fripp plays guitar on the album. Many others, Simon King from Hawkwind played drums on Eno's original version of this. Uh, it's been covered so many times. Hickoids, Queens of the Stone Age, Elf Power, uh, more recently the band Civic. It's really great. Perfect cover for, for Volcano Suns, my favorite of the covers, I would say. Uh, Eno's process for writing lyrics was kind of to complete the music, sing nonsense over top of the finished tracks and then form lyrics around that nonsense. Mm. People have tried to read into into a lot of his lyrics, but Eno has said uh, that this song in particular was written in less time, this is a quote, it was written in less time than it takes to sing. 
I regarded as an instrumental with singing on it. Hmm. Great gang vocal from the Sons. Uh, great version of the guitar solo from David. Uh, not sure what's kind of creating the effect in the background on this. It's melodic. Sounds like a, a guitar kind of heavily processed through a delay pedal uh, with a chorus pedal or something. Possibly a keyboard. Yeah, it's a great cover by them, and you can tell why they did it. Yeah. Like, this is a great fit for them as a cover. Uh, next, we have the two CD-only tracks. Kick Out the Jams, Motherfuckers, of course, written by the MC5. Everyone knows this track. It's been covered thousands of times. Um, the title track from the Five's 1969 debut, recorded live at the Grande Ballroom in Detroit on Halloween 1968. Peter doing a pretty convincing Rob Tyner, I would say. I, I like the sample in the background. Kind of sounds like wind almost. Hmm. Or maybe it's a new wind. I don't know. Um, or a flanger. I don't know what it is. The way they use it to kind of build up to the solo break is just genius. It kind of makes that solo break really stand out. Yeah. it's. I mean, I'll always love <laughs> listening to anything MC5 and the Volcano Suns doing this track. It works for me. Uh, quick SS Tree quiz. Who else covers this song? Is it Doss Dahman? I'm pretty sure Henry Rollins does it with the Bad Brains on the on the Pump Up the Volume yep. soundtrack. Yeah, he does. Um, bet this was a total show, show stealer live. Like, yeah, yeah. Like as an encore or something. And we'll be seeing this song again in like five or six episodes on the Duck and Cover comp. Yeah. And then another CD-only cover is Red Eye Express. Jerry Casale and Mark Mothersbaugh wrote it. The original appears on Devo's second studio album from 1979, Duty Now for the Future, under the title Red Eye, which is how it's usually written. Um, like their debut, most of the material on that record predates the recording of the album, including the song Red Eye. You can find hilarious footage from the era of them performing this live with boogie boy on vocals um, <laughs> apparently they frequently did it as an encore uh, i could be wrong but i don't think there's an early early studio recording like there is for a lot of the stuff from this era like on hardcore devos one and two mm. uh, but there's definitely live bootlegs of the of this song that predate the album version oh yeah for yeah. sure uh the the original is very keyboard driven almost like uh, the band Suicide or something. The main riff that that Bob kind of holds on holds down on on the bass is played on the keys on the Devo version. Yeah, yeah. Um, awesome. Yeah, another great cover selection. Mm -hmm. Then we've got the track Mud. We're back to the LP now. Of course, this is on all the versions. Um, written by Bob. Bob, I assume, belting out the verses with another killer gang vocal for the chorus. Um to be honest, for me, by this point, the double album of it all is kind of starting to set in a little bit. Oh, no way. I love this. This this track kind of re-energizes me anyways. Here's Mud In Your Eye, the vocals, three-part harmony. Love it. Yeah. Uh, don't get me wrong. I'm glad this is a double album, but like, it's a lot for my attention span these days anyways. Oh, yeah. You have to set aside some time. Yep. I'm not sure I've listened to it start to finish as many times as I did this week in yeah. years. I probably would have just went, you know, probably made it three quarters of the way through. Yeah. And then we've got Re Veteran, written by the whole band. I think this is the one David mentions where they switched instruments, uh, and it kind of sounds like it. 
I, I assume it was somewhat improvised, hence the, the credit to all three members. Great tremolo effect on the guitar, though, which is, you know, it's a bit Burma-esque again, but it works. Yep. And then Hang Up is the last song written by Peter. I think I say it in the interview, but this is kind of the perfect track to end the record, I think. Oh, yeah. Peter just belting it out solo. I like songs that have the album title in the lyric, and, and this one does that. Um, there's no title track, but it, it you know it makes sense. Uh, and also, I'm not sure which song it is, but one song on here uses the lyric Career and Rock, which is the title of the follow-up album. And there's a sample. It sounds like it might be Shirley Temple or something saying like, oh, if you only knew. Yeah, maybe, hey. Hmm? The artwork. I guess if Peter wanted a gatefold, he, he didn't quite get his wish on this. Eleanor Ramsey credited with the artwork. She did uh, the two previous to this, Bumper Crop and Farst. Looks like she she's still working as an artist and an art educator. She uh, She did go to the Massachusetts College of Art and Design. I don't know. It's a cool record or a cool cover. We got some mint chocolate, <laughs> mint chip, I guess. That's mint chocolate chip. Yep. Yeah. Good eye. Yeah. Some, some, uh, <laughs> orange sor- sorbet, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> chocolate, chocolate. What's the, what's the pink stuff? Uh, I don't know, man. What do you think that back cover is sourced from? What does that look like to you? To me, it looks like they've taken kind of a pic, like, one segment of a photo and then they've obviously reproduced it uh it looks like people maybe singing in an audience like the national anthem or something like that mm, yeah good and, guess yeah and they've kind of copied it around because you can see it's the same like seven people over and over and over yeah. i want to know what that little dude is in the bottom middle though yeah i know looks like a little dinosaur junior almost or something yeah i've got one review out of trouser press on this and again, more props to David. People really recognized what he brought to the band, I would say. Mm-hmm. Here's Ira Robbins out of the Trouser Press for this record. David Clyler, a guest on Farst, became the son's cool new guitarist and astute songwriter on the extremely consistent and both style and quality four-sided thing of beauty. Recommitting itself to wall-shaking tuneful overdrive the trio antes up 19 fine new numbers with clearly audible, clever lyrics, plus a great cover of Eno's Needles in the Camel's Eye that both credits and honors an obvious inspiration. Couldn't agree more on that. Yeah. No dead wax. Nope. So I guess we're off to the ballot result. Uh-oh. Ballot result. So how many times do we do the opening track on ballot result? Like 50% (laughs) of the time, hey? I I would say I haven't gone through and counted, but um, yeah, my favorites were Barricade, No Place, Right of Way, Soft Hit, Nightmare Country, Needles in the Camel's Eye, and Hang Up. Mm. Well, I won't do a cover. I just don't think I want to do that. It's a good track. Don't Mm -hmm. get me wrong. But my top two are Barricade and No Place. I And I mean, No Place might not make sense. I just got such a soft spot for Bob's playing on there. So maybe it's Barricade. I think we got to do Barricade, man. Yeah. yeah. It's just so Volcano Suns. Yeah. In the best way. Yeah. All right. Great record. Thanks, David, for being on the show. Yeah. What a shame that we only get to do two Volcano Suns on the show, but... 
so glad that we get to. People should check out their other four amazing records that we won't cover on the show here. Mm-hmm. Just awesome. So consistent, this band, uh, with Peter being the only consistent member, but he definitely cycled through a lot of people that worked really well with him. And you got to give it to David and Bob um, for those final years of the Volcano Suns. The records are just so great. Yeah. All right, Ryan, what's next week? Next week, Brent, if I'm not mistaken, it's the Cruise Intrusion Part 2. Is that right? TBD. Whoa. (laughs) Thanks for listening, everybody. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at MoJackPod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is MoJackPod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.